Lincoln Riley met with the media this past Wednesday, and one of the first questions he got revolved around the potential high school recruits and the defensive coordinator position at Oklahoma. It was a great question, and Riley's answer led us to what we've all been thinking for the past week or so. He's not hiring a defensive coordinator until after the season. Riley admitted that the timeline for making a decision at defensive coordinator may have been different if the Sooners were not in the playoff, but they are, and OU's got a chance to win it. Along those same lines, I want to play for you the best thing I heard from Riley's Wednesday press conference. Riley was asked what his message has been to recruits when the kids and their family members have asked about the defensive coordinator position. Riley's message, perfect. If you were a senior on this football team at Oklahoma right now, what would you want me as the head coach worried about right now? You want me worried about a defensive coordinator for next year and beyond, or you want us worried about trying to win a national championship? You know, and that's that's pretty unanimous across the board. And uh, my, of course, the recruits are vitally important to us, but our our first priority is our players and our team here. Every single person who's played sports, no matter what sport, should absolutely love what they heard from Lincoln Riley there, especially in a sport like college football where there's so much turnover and a lot of these guys will not be playing football anymore after they've left the school. That message accomplishes two things. Number one, it tells potential recruits that when you play at Oklahoma, you're truly part of a family, and more importantly, you're part of a family who has championship aspirations year in and year out. And two, it allows Riley to keep all of the defensive coordinator stuff to himself. It's a win-win. I'm pretty fired up about what Riley said, as you might be able to tell. And who knows, maybe that message is used by a bunch of college football coaches out there. But granted, not many college football coaches get the opportunity to coach in the college football playoff. The reason I love that so much is because this is the time of year that every single college football player works for. Football is a brutal sport, a sport with way more practice time than actual game time. Practice isn't fun. The weight room isn't fun watching film, while it should be tons of fun, probably isn't fun to a lot of college football players. All of those hours have led up to this time of the year. The time of the year when you're two wins away from winning a national championship, a thing that the vast majority of people in this world never get to experience. Yet, this time of the year is also a huge time of the year for recruiting. I mean, Riley was out on the recruiting trail literally the day after the Big 12 title game and also during the final college football playoff selection show ratings when he found out that OU was going to the playoff. He and the OU assistant coaches had been out on the road nonstop ahead of Wednesday's early signing period. I get it. Recruiting is the lifeblood of a program. You can't win championships if you've got bad players. But I got to tell you, full disclosure, I'm so incredibly uninterested with recruiting. There's a market for it, and that's perfectly fine. But it's just not something I dive into. And as a result, I love what Riley said. As far as I'm concerned, Riley's message wasn't just to recruits. Riley's message was to the entire Oklahoma fan base. We're here to win a national championship. Nothing else matters right now. Period. I'm Lee Benson. This is West of Everest. 30-27. Last 36 seconds down. Got out of one. Hand picked up. Oklahoma will win it. Touchdown, Eric Bassey. 
Eric Bassey scoops and scores to seal the Sooners' 37-27 win over Alabama back on September the 7th, 2002. OU blew a 23-3 lead in that game as Bama stormed back to take a 27-23 lead before Kiwan Jones scored a touchdown in the final two minutes to give the Sooners the lead. And then Bassey's fumble six put the nail in Bama's coffin. Hey, everybody. Once again, I am Lee Benson, and this is West of Everest. So here's the deal today. I didn't watch as much Bama film as I would have liked last week. I got through one game, Bama versus Texas A&M, back from September. I'll tell you what that game told me about the Crimson Tide, and then I'll ask Grant what he knows about the Crimson Tide so far. No need to worry, though. I've got a couple of days off coming up here. And in lieu of shopping for Christmas presents, I'm just going to watch some more Bama film and take more notes. I'll probably do a little bit of shopping, too because I'm a procrastinator. But in addition to our thoughts on Bama, we'll go over the news of the week, including updated status reports on Marquise Brown and Tua Tonga-Vailoa. Plus, we're going to talk about Baker Mayfield for really the first time all fall, and then some other college football-related topics. Uh, By the way, uh, Mayfield, you all probably know, Mayfield and the Browns beat the Broncos on Saturday, and Baker didn't play all that well, but he did make some plays, and the defense came up huge. So, We'll give you some thoughts about what we think about his rookie season and how that's progressed so far. So with all of that, let's bring in Grant for the first time. Grant, what's going on? Nothing much, Lee. I liked your opening take. That was pretty good. And I think you were kind of right on the money there. This is it, It's actually when you break it down like that, it, it just comes off as blatantly obvious. Of course, Lincoln Riley, all he's caring about right now is, is beating Alabama. And, and why not? And I I'm really, uh, am really happy with what he says there. He brings up the the seniors on the team and and you know what they expect their head coach to be doing right now and act and actually I, I think that message probably resonates with recruits heavily uh, because they know that when they get there they're going to be cared for um, they know that they're going to be the priority when they're on campus so um, it's it, it's good to see that you know I, I while all the fans are talking about the defensive coordinator and all of the logistics and the externalities going on within the program it, it does seem like this coaching staff right now is is, is focused on beating Alabama and you know, that's that's obviously a good thing. I love it. It's, right when I heard him say that, when I was listening to the press conference on Wednesday, I I was like, wow, that's that's one of the best things I've heard from Lincoln Riley in a while. And Riley says a lot of good stuff. He's just so good. I mean, he's so thoughtful up there at the podium. Uh, he's honest, uh, as, as honest as he can be. I mean, let's be honest. He He has thoughts. He knows what he wants to do somewhat with the defensive coordinator spot but as far as we know he's kept that under wraps I mean as far as the public knows and his team knows it's all about Alabama right now and that's the way it should be uh and and I love it because again as I mentioned in the top recruiting is just something that just has never interested me all that much even now when I've been working in Oklahoma and have been more covering Oklahoma football really on a on a day-to-day month-to-month basis not just interested during the football season you think maybe my interest in recruiting would go up a little bit and it has gone up more than it was in the past but still I just I don't get that excited about talking about potential Oklahoma recruits because they're high school kids and they're not on campus yet and sure they could be really good but a lot of these high school kids end up being just fine or not really impactful I want to see them get on on campus so that's why I'm not into it I know you kind of wanted to touch on recruiting briefly because I mean the early signing period's coming up on Wednesday this week and we're going to find out a, about a bunch of new Oklahoma players coming into the system because they're going to be signing on the dotted line their national letter of intent and that'll be interesting I suppose because you know how many 
four or five-star players they're going to get. Will they get the, some good defensive players? I mean, we'll be talking about it. We'll be interested in that. But this isn't the show for that. So uh, I'll open up the floor to you. What are your quick thoughts on recruiting? Oh, no, I just wanted to mention it and just sort of as, as an update and as a reminder to everyone, this is, this is not a recruiting-centric show. Um, so, you know, Wednesday is the early signing period, which has sort of turned into de facto signing day uh, because last year was the first year of it and pretty much everybody signed on the dotted line on that day. Um, I think based off everything we've read so far, that's likely to happen again. It looks like Oklahoma is going to be able to wrap up a vast majority of their class uh, this upcoming Wednesday. We did this last year, Lee, where we kind of, you know, after the first signing day, we sort of just gave our thoughts about our, our very brief thoughts, because like you said, we're not experts. We gave our thoughts on, on who we liked in the class, maybe who we didn't feel like you know were great fits. Uh, we'll probably do something like that similar again. Um, but but really what this is, this is just kind of a, a, a detour from from what we really want to talk about. And that's that's the product currently on the field now. It's going to be a lot easier to to evaluate these guys when they're in an OU uniform, when they're competing against other college guys. So um, it's just I, I I'm not qualified enough to to judge a high schooler's talent based off of them going against other high schoolers. Uh, so we're just gonna we're, we're gonna keep it strictly to to OU players on the field. But um, we will give our brief thoughts when we feel like we need to. Yeah, and I just makes me think of Buki. And who knows how much Buki will play in the Orange Bowl, if at all. He didn't play at all, really. He didn't play any defensive snaps in the Big 12 title game. And, I, you know, everybody really lauded him. And I liked his tape coming out of high school. And he's just had a he's had a, a not good freshman season. And a lot of us think he's playing out of position. And so, anyways, I mean, go back to that. I mean, we were all really excited about Buki. And, you know, he, he just did not play that well. So before exactly. you get down, and so, and, oh, yeah, and that's and that's one of the reasons why you just it's 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 probably smart to to pump the brakes a little bit when it comes to the recruiting because um, you never know how these kids are going to be taught once they get on campus. I mean, we saw, I mean, how excited were we about Buki at this time last year, and you know the the product on the field sort of painted a different picture. So um, everyone just kind of tap the brakes a little bit. You know, college football is 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 hard, and it's quite the step up from high school football. So. Uh, that's, I think that's all that really needs to be said. All right, before we get into some Alabama talk, let's just go over the injury news. Lincoln Riley saying that Marquise Brown is, quote, not a definite no, not a definite yes for the Orange Bowl, adding, quote, we're hopeful, but he hasn't done much up to this point. So that was last Wednesday on December the 12th. I'm sure Oklahoma has been practicing, so, I mean, who knows what Brown's been able to do at practice, if anything. Uh, it is worth noting that the Heisman Trophy weekend, that Kyler Murray was asked about Marquise Brown, and Kyler Murray said, yeah, I expect him to play in Miami. But, I mean, of course that's what he's going to say. So uh, you know, who, are you gonna, who has more information on this, the quarterback or Lincoln Riley? All season long, Oklahoma's been kind of shady when it comes to injuries, haven't really given out much information. So we're not, we're not going to know, really. Um, now, Grant, you have made the comment a few times since the Big 12 title game that Oklahoma needs its pros to be great if the Sooners want to beat Alabama. And Brown's definitely a player who fits into that category. I mean, he's going to play in the NFL to some extent. Uh, so, I mean, just for fun, do you have any feelings on Marquise Brown right now? Well, when it comes to OU injuries for for bowl games, Lee, I, I'm always, I, I always tend to be pessimistic about it just because they've always had such awful luck with it. Um, so really, I mean, if you had to put a gun to my head right now, what I'm feeling, I think he's going to play. 
Uh, I, I don't think he's going to be particularly effective, though, if, if you made me bet on it right now. That's fair because, man, I just him lining up just as a decoy at least sounds like a good idea. But it's like if that's what the what happens and it's pretty obvious from the beginning that he doesn't have that same burst. I'm not sure how much of a decoy he's going to be, but I'm kind of with you. I mean, I, I can see him suiting up and giving it a go and seeing what happens. But it's just I'm not that it sounds like you're the same way. I'm just not that confident that he's going to be the Marquise Brown that that we like to to watch out there. Yeah, I just, I, I mean, I don't, I, and we just don't know yet. And so I, he just, it, it did not look good in the Big 12 title game. And if it's, it's not an ankle, it's his foot. So, I mean, I, I, I just, I have to think that he, he broke some sort of bone in his foot. Uh, I just, because I don't know what else the, the injury would be. So, um I just yeah I I'm I'm pessimistic I just I've I I've seen it so many times where they're down a, a massive big time player in a bowl game and I I just I kind of just fully expect it to happen again. Meanwhile, Tua Tungavailoa was spotted on the Alabama practice field Friday, and uh, kudos to Alabama for letting cameras into practice this time of the year. Oklahoma does not do that, so there's video out there of Tua going through some quarterback drills. Uh, it looks like his ankle is somewhat taped. I believe it's his left ankle, the high ankle sprain. Uh, you can see he's being kind of cautious with his movement, but to me, Tua didn't look particularly hobbled by his injury. I expect him to be good to go for the Orange Bowl, and at the very worst, I would bet he'll be something like 90 to 95% at the very worst, uh, which, frankly, is probably a better status than he played a few games at this year where it seemed like he was kind of banged up a bit throughout the season. So I think this time off will help to his ankle heal a bit and any other ailments so grant did you see any of those uh, those two videos and do you have any takes on his status right now yeah i thought he looked hobbled i don't know what you were looking at he, he most certainly was not ready to play from what i saw um but at the same well, time i mean comparatively that was... like i looked at the other quarterbacks too during the drills and he looked like the other quarterbacks were also doing the same stuff so that's why Sure. I just, I just based off what I looked like, it looked like, I mean, he was going at 50% tops. I mean, he was not testing it very hard at all. You got to, you got to realize, Lee, I mean, a lot of what, what's going to, you know, limit him potentially is, you know, him cutting on a dime, him putting weight on it if he's got to really let it go. Um, I saw him basically just going through warm ups. I didn't think, it didn't really look like he tested it out too much. And that's not to say that, you know, I'm like getting excited about him not playing or something like that. I, I'm with you. I fully expect him to play, and I fully expect him to be, you know, anywhere between 90 and 100 percent. But I, I didn't, based off that video, I didn't think he looked particularly close, to be honest with you. Hmm. Okay. Well, and then just for the record, uh, I guess it's worth mentioning that the news came out this week, and I say the news came out. Dan Patrick's radio show. Uh, apparently, on Thursday, he just made a a comment in passing when he was talking about Alabama. He said that he's hearing that Tua is iffy for the Orange Bowl. Did you hear that at all? I, Did I didn't I didn't hear him. I saw I saw the I saw people talking about it. Yeah, I saw yeah. a tweet too. I didn't I, I'm apparently assuming, he didn't elaborate at all. Yeah, I'm assuming if it was a bigger deal, we it would have been plastered all over the internet. So I don't I I'm I'm assuming he's probably just firing from the hip there. I mean Dan Patrick's a credible guy. Yeah, he's that's been around true. forever. That's so true. I mean he But the fact that he didn't really go into more details and elaborate, it's you can't take much from that i'd say we did get a question on the facebook page from one of our loyal listeners philip and he was asking about tua and jalen hurts 
And, you know, for Oklahoma's chances of winning to be better, one would think that playing against Hertz would be better than playing against Tua. However, if Tua's not 100%, who would you rather play quarterback exclusively for Alabama, Grant? Yeah, see, this one, this one's pretty easy for me. I, I understand the other side of the argument, but give me, I mean, give me Hertz all day long. I, I just, I, I would really prefer not to, you know, to face the guy, the other guy who broke Baker Mayfield's passing efficiency record from last year. <laughs> yeah. I, and I'm sorry, I've, I've watched, um, I, I have watched some Alabama since our last show. I've watched two games of theirs. Uh, two, two is really effing good. So I mean I would I would much much rather play Hurts. Uh, J- Jalen Hurts is a limited player. Tua is not limited. He's not. He can make every throw. He's athletic. He can he can run by guys on our defense. Um, Jalen Hurts is a limited thrower. He would be. I mean, they, OU has faced quarterbacks this year who throw the ball considerably better than Jalen Hurts. Uh, the same cannot be said for for Tua. And I, I just I'm to me this is so easy. Uh, it's. Jalen Hurts, I, I think OU, or, uh, Alabama is imminently beatable with Jalen Hurts at quarterback. They, they turn into last year's Bama without Tua with Hurts at quarterback. And, and, I'm, and that's a team that is, really struggles to get the ball downfield because Jalen Hurts really has no accuracy past five yards downfield. Um, he displayed I, some is, accuracy at times against Georgia sure. when it mattered the most. He sure. had a couple down-the-field throws that were pretty nice. Yep, and so I, I just – I'm – if if Jalen Hurts plays in this game, you know, starts in this game and plays the entire game for for Alabama, I think that would just really play right into OU's hands. They'd be able to roll out their 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 hybrid four three look, and they would probably be okay with that. Um, their 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 Texas their second Texas game plan would be applicable to this game if Jalen Hurts was in because I've said it. Jalen Hurts is a more athletic version of Sam Ellinger. And honestly, he's not he's not as good of a thrower of the football as Ellinger. Ellinger is better throwing the ball than Jalen Hurts is. Um, so yeah, I don't know about that's, that. that I, I do. I, I am 100% sure about that. Um, so, okay, well, just cause you're 100% sure about it yeah. doesn't mean that it's true. I'm saying it's just, but it's, had, it's, I, it's, we haven't, we haven't seen Hertz in a while. Yeah. So, I mean, you've seen a lot more Ellinger. Yeah. I mean, he, this is, this is very, he looked really good me. in that Georgia. Okay. So, so here's the, here's the argument. I mean, just to entertain it, what you're basically going for is that, okay, sure. If you're going to say, yeah, I'd rather have Tua play at less than 100%, what you're hoping for and banking on is that ankle is is still giving him problems, and essentially he just turns into a statue in the pocket and he can't move. And when you watch Tua play, especially against Georgia, and I'll, I'll see it more, hopefully, when I see more film, he tends to hold on to the football a little too long because he wants to make plays. He's a, he's a baller. He's a playmaker. And so if something's not there right away, he tends to hold on to the football quite a bit against Georgia in that SC title game. He held on to the ball way too long, and he took hits, and, and he threw the ball late, and he didn't look particularly good, and that's, that's why he didn't win the Heisman Trophy because he didn't play very well against Georgia. So you, the thought is a hobbled Tua can't move as well. Therefore, if he holds on to the ball – too much or he doesn't make those split second decisions and maybe you can get to him and he can't get away from you whereas Jalen Hurts yeah he's not anywhere near as good of a thrower of the football as Tua he is an elite level quarterback with his legs I mean he is very very good with his legs and I know he's been banged up a bit this season but he did not seem to be injured at all against Georgia when he came in and looked fresh and used his legs to pick up some yardage and he scored that go-ahead touchdown with his legs as well and so I, I guess you, you pick your poison there, but I think you made a good point. If Hertz would play this game and Oklahoma found out or 
whatever. We knew that Hertz was going to be the guy. I think that's a good point you made about the Texas game plan. Second time in the Big 12 title game would be applicable. I think you're right because Texas's offense and Alabama's offense is different. But a lot of that is because Tua is able to make a lot of throws. And if Hertz is in there and he can't make certain throws that Tua can, then maybe, yeah, maybe Alabama's offense would be more like Texas's offense, where when they throw the football, it's a lot of just you know, short passes and you know, I guess jump balls. But tech, uh, Bama has, you know, their big tight end, Irv Smith. But outside of that, they just have a bunch of really speedy, kind of shorter, smaller stature receivers. So that would be interesting. I guess that's the argument. But I'd, I'd lean towards your way. I'd much rather like to see Tua play than a hobble. Or I'm sorry, uh, Jalen Hurts play than a hobble Tua. Because I think even a hobble Tua, he's used to it this year. He's, he's played banged up and injured. And he's still been able to make a lot of great throws. And he's such a good – he's a great quarterback. I mean, he's awesome. He's a great player. So, yeah, I'd, I'd like to see Hurts play more than Tua – just because I think that would give Oklahoma a better shot. Sure. I mean, I, I, I understand the argument, uh, the the hobbled Tua argument. I, I get it. I really do. Um, I just, I, I think people are really underselling the fact that Tua not playing in this game would remove the dynamic that has made Alabama's offense tick this year, which is their newfound ability to get the ball downfield in the passing game. Jalen Hurts cannot do that with any sort of consistency, and that is a huge deal. That is what has made Alabama's offense so lethal this year is Tua's ability to get the ball downfield and for them to kill you over the top of the defense. Jalen Hurts can't do that. He just can't. So, um, I, I mean, I just I, I would much rather, much rather face the guy um, who is going to beat you with, with his legs and with his arm um, because it's, you know, Oklahoma's defense this year has, has been killed much more by the guys that can throw the ball um, than, than the latter. So, I... It's it's so easy for me. Uh, this is But you know it, what I just thought of though? I just thought like how what if Tua really can't play and it's Hertz's game? How much more devastating would it be if Hertz plays exclusively and comes in and plays really well and uh, Alabama still is able to beat Oklahoma by two or three touchdowns with I've, Jalen Hurts in there like oh. well yeah that's not just that's just a hypothetical. I'm just saying I mean <laughs> if if that happens that means the same thing would have happened with Tua then. Uh, yeah. So like I just I'm well um, yeah. and and like don't don't depends get me on how wrong he does here. It. I'm I mean, not if hurts depends on how it would happen though if if hurts just pulls a Josh Allen this year in the NFL and runs for a hundred yards or more you know it's like I would two have done that I don't know I mean two is a he could run he is, he's mobile but he's not nearly as mobile as the idea as Jalen hurts the idea is that if if Jalen hurts just if if he runs for a thousand yards it's going to be because Alabama's offensive line just just roughs up yeah. OU, which is probably going to happen anyway. So, like, don't do not get me wrong here. I'm not saying that Jalen Hurts is going to make Alabama's offense like anemic or anything like that. That's not going to happen. If Jalen Hurts plays, Alabama's still going to go up and down the field. Like, so just don't get me wrong. I'm just saying the 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 dynamic of you know getting burned on a 60 yard pass is is largely going to be taken away if Tua ta- uh, if Tua does not play in this game, and that is huge. That is very significant. So more on the injury front, one of the more random things that Riley said on Wednesday, at least to me, and I guess he has mentioned this guy briefly prior to this Wednesday, but I just I hadn't heard him that closely yet. But anyways, uh, Chance Sylvie apparently could help the Sooners in the Orange Bowl, and Sylvie's missed the entire season with an Achilles injury. I read some reports that he did dress for the West Virginia game. It's not clear if he was dressed out for the Big 12 title game. You know, this may not mean anything, but... When Oklahoma's secondary has been this bad, particularly at the safety position, which is what Sylvie plays, 
any sort of news that a player who has played a bunch of snaps for this Oklahoma program over the years could potentially help. It's interesting. So does the thought of Chance Sylvie playing some snaps, Grant, just get you pumped up for the Orange Bowl? Not particularly, but <laughs> I mean, I can't I, I can't imagine him being particularly effective. But like like you said, I mean, what did would it really hurt that much? I mean, that's I, been a revolving I mean, door at safety. He can't be any any worse than what has been there. Another so, name that I haven't heard brought up a while, maybe it's because I'm just out to lunch and I just don't know. Is Khalil Houghton just done for the year? Do you he's got to be. Yeah, he's got to be. Because I, I he wasn't even asked about on this Wednesday presser. I mean, Chance Sylvie came up, but... Uh, yeah, the guy, I mean, really in terms of health for the secondary, the guy that, I, that I'm that i most interested in is Jordan Parker. Um, hmm. So, like, I don't... Yeah. But I don't know if he's come up at all. He was a guy who who had shown some flashes in the you know in November when he was in there. He had made some plays, had struggled in other plays. But I mean, that's pretty much par for the course for for the safeties yeah. this year. And I wonder if Justin Broyles is anywhere near because I know he wasn't even dressed for I think the last couple of games because he had that that I can't remember what what game it was where he kind of got he got injured and it looked really bad. But I guess it, was it wasn't weird. as bad as they yeah. thought. He yeah. had a weird little lower leg injury. It looked like against Kansas. I can't. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. I think, um, in terms of defense, the most, the most important health, uh, you know, health wise, the most important player on this defense for this game, I still think is probably Neville Gallimore. Um, he's going to be so big and, and trying to limit the run. So, um, yeah, yeah Absolutely I mean, that's, massive. that's the bit. Yeah. N- Neville Gallimore is by far the most important player on this OU defense, in my opinion, uh, for the orange bowl. Let's just uh, real quick off the top of our heads. Most important players in the Oklahoma defense. Obviously, Neville Gallimore is number one. Number two, I think it's either got to be between, this is crazy, Caleb Kelly or uh, Amani Bledsoe because then he pairs really well with Neville Gallimore. They're in the middle to slow the run. And then take your pick in the secondary. I mean, Trey Norwood actually played pretty well. If, if Trey at, Norwood's at, playing at, that, that safety, safety position, then I, which I think I, I playing think well. I mean, yeah. playing well because, I mean, he – Stood, you know, came in without any, with a week of preparation and played pretty well at safety. I mean, he wasn't perfect, but for not playing that position all year long, I mean, you got to tip your cap to him. So I know it sucks he's not going to get any game experience in the next month or the next couple weeks, but at least he'll get a bunch of practice experience because I can't imagine they're going to move him back to corner. I think they're going to keep him there. So, I mean, gosh, I, Alabama's going to see that and they're going to know that they got a guy playing safety that's barely played it this year. They're going to probably try to exploit it. So a lot's going to be on him. Oh yeah, for sure. So, I mean, it's everything is going to be important. I just the the small <laughs> the small things in this game are are, are just going to be huge. There I mean, there Alabama is is going to go up and down the field on this defense. It's just can can, yeah, o- can Oklahoma make a play every now and then? Can they get them off the field? Can they force three or four punts? Uh, can they get them to you know miss a field goal or something? Can they turn them over in the red zone? That's what this game's going to come down to. And I think if OU's going to win the game, the defense is going to have to make plays like that. And this is going to sound like me being a jerk, but can Kenneth Murray avoid playing an awful game? Because against uh, an offense like Alabama's, that's got a month to prepare, and they're going to see him on tape. And I'm sorry, he just he's not a particularly high level linebacker in the middle there they're going to find ways like Georgia did last year in the Rose Bowl to exploit them and basically can Kenneth Murray make tackles and not look lost in pass coverage I don't know I, that's I mean if I would if he can just not play terrible that would be great yeah also Lee I, it, I don't know in, in the run game this year I don't he hasn't been awful defending the run this year he just hasn't been instinctual 
I think this year, in terms of in terms of gap discipline, he's actually been pretty good. He's just you can always just kind of see the wheels turning in his head. So I think he's been in good position this year, especially in the run game. He's just not particularly instinctual of a middle linebacker. Um, where I where he's looked completely lost this year is, of course, in zone coverage, uh, which I've said I think he's the worst. He, he's the worst coverage linebacker in the Big Twelve, and, and I don't I don't take that lightly at all. He was just so atrocious this year in zone coverage over the middle of the field. So so bad. All right, real quick before we get to our Alabama talk, I want to say thanks to the listeners who've recently left ratings and reviews on iTunes. We've got a few new reviews in the last week, and they've been very positive, so thanks a lot for that. We encourage you all to leave ratings and reviews on iTunes because it helps us with those iTunes rankings, and it lets us know that you're enjoying the podcast, and it it also leads other people to potentially find the show and, and enjoy West of Everest. Also, you can like the show on Facebook. That way you can stay up to date with the podcast release dates. And also you can interact with us. I'd like to personally thank one listener. And I mean, Grant probably feels the same way. But one listener provided their thoughts on the Facebook page. Uh, This wasn't public. This was a private message to us uh, on the whole Kyler Murray Twitter thing after the Heisman last week. And you may remember that Grant and I gave some brief thoughts on that during the last podcast. I thought Grant was really good, really short and sweet. I was kind of all over the place. Didn't make that good of points, but you know that's just me here sometimes. I'm just scattershot. But uh, I wanted to point it out because this listener's thoughts were really good. And I agree with all of his words that he said. I, I think, Grant, you responded to him on the Facebook page. So, uh, so well done, and I appreciate the feedback there. And uh, finally, I, by the way, yeah, go ahead. Go can ahead. I just Sorry. say something about this? I, I, I am so happy that um, all of the talk regarding that story this past week was just condemnation for the people who dug up the tweets. I'm very happy that was the case. That gives me a lot of more faith just kind of in our culture and, and us as people. So I, that, that's good to see. We're not, we're, we're not, as a society, we're not completely, you know, too far gone yet. Yeah, that, I agree, 100%. Well put. By the way, we're going to be uh, tentatively planning for the next episode to come out later this week. So Thursday or Friday is the idea. Now that we're within two weeks of the game, we'll try to give you a little more content leading up to the game to uh, satiate your OU Alabama uh, needs, if you will. So check the Facebook page for updates. And as always, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Lee Benson News 9. Grant is at Grant Benson 25. Let's get into this discussion on what we've seen from Alabama so far. Pretty much all of my thoughts will be from A&M, Alabama, from late September. And it was, a, it was a home game for Alabama. Grant, just curious, what games have you watched so far? So I watched the first half of uh, Alabama Ole Miss. I thought it would be important to watch that game to see how Alabama came out defending Ole Miss. Uh, because Ole Miss uses a lot of personnel groupings very similar to Oklahoma. So I thought that was, it was going to be important to watch that game. Um, so I do have some interesting takes on that one. Um, and then I watched the entire uh, Alabama A&M game. Okay, good. Yeah, and I actually watched the first half of that A&M, uh, Alabama Ole Miss game as well. I didn't watch it as closely enough as I did A&M. Like, I didn't take a bunch of notes, but just to kind of have it in there because I was, like you, I was curious because statistically Ole Miss's offense is one of the best in the nation. And uh, it did. So anyways, we'll, we'll get to that. Um, so here's how we're going to do this. I can't think of any better way to do it so I'm just going to provide my breakdown of this Bama A&M game from a film study perspective. And since Grant's watched it, too, he'll be able to provide insights as well. 
I'm fully aware this game happened two plus months ago and that when I watch more recent tape on the tide that things might be different. But, you know, I want to start with A&M because this was the first good team Bama played this year, in my opinion. And you could argue that Ole Miss is considered a good team because the Rebels offense, like I said a second ago, statistically had had been one of the best in the nation this year. But Ole Miss had had done much of it, you know, much of its damage against not good defenses and against competent defenses this year. Only seven points against Alabama, 16 points against LSU, 16 against Auburn, and just a field goal against Mississippi State, and just 24 points against an A&M defense that is actually pretty horrible against the pass, which I'll get to here in a second. So Bama A&M was truly the Tide's first test of the year, and A&M played okay, but Alabama passed the test with flying colors, in my opinion. The only bad thing you could say about Bama in this game is that it didn't cover the monster spread, which is something like 26 or 27 points, and the Tide won the game by 22. So I'm going to go over what I saw from both sides of the football. We'll start with the Alabama offense. Against A&M, Tua and the offense had the ball 11 times. Bama scored seven of those 11 times, six touchdowns, one field goal. With Tua in the game, Bama averaged 9.4 yards per play, and he was pulled for the fourth quarter, when Jalen Hurts came in, Hurts was in for two drives, both ending in punts. The big things that stood out to me offensively for Alabama, Tua is really good. And remember, this was early in the year, so I'm sure he's gotten a lot better. His ball placement is just very, very fine. Uh, he's also very smart. He's, he's good enough to look off safeties, throw back to the other side of the field. I mean, that's some high-level high level Baker Mayfield stuff. And, I mean, Tua's already doing it, and this is his first full year as a starter. You know, he's mobile enough, although he didn't really run that much against A&M. He did have a short quarterback keeper touchdown run early on in the game. In that game against Texas A&M, Tua had his best passing contest of the season. Shouldn't be a surprise, though, because the Aggies are even worse statistically against the pass this season than Oklahoma. A&M's opponent pass efficiency rating, 151.9, which ranks 113th in the nation. Oklahoma is slightly better at 146.8, which is 106th in the nation. Outside of the passing game, what really stood out to me is that Alabama could not run the ball against Texas A&M. A&M held Bama to less than four yards per carry. Damian Harris had a long 35-yard run in the game in the second half, but aside from that, Bama was stymied on the ground for the most part. The Aggies actually have one of the best run defenses in college football, and to me, it looked like his A&M's defensive line is pretty darn good, but they clearly sell out against the run because they cannot stop anybody through the air. So, Grant, those are my thoughts on the Alabama offense, and I have some other notes, too, that I can go over from the A&M game, but I'll pause now and allow you to give your thoughts on the A&M, uh, the Alabama offense, rather, in that one. Yeah, generally my thoughts were, I, you know, A&M, I thought, did, especially on first and second down, they really sold out to stop the run in that game. And as a result, I thought, especially in the first half, Alabama was in a lot of third and longs um, in the first half, and they actually, they converted, you know, quite quite a bit of them, actually. Um, so, you know, I yeah, I thought, I thought Alabama, for the first time, kind of all season in this game, looked human on offense. But, I mean, Katua just dropped some dimes. Like, I, stuff that you just... There were plays where Texas A&M, I don't even think, could have defended it any better. Um, and, and Tua still was able to drop some dimes to Jerry Judy. There was one, I think, to Irv Smith as well. Uh, his first pass of the game was a was a perfectly thrown ball that Devontae Smith dove for and caught in the end zone. 
Um, no, he didn't I, die for it. It was right on the money. It was a double move, and Smith yeah. just caught it in stride. He didn't have to die for it. You didn't, you didn't think he had to die for it? You thought that was a little... That was some, no, he, some he drama dive. for him. Devon, yeah, he did. No, he didn't. He caught it in stride. Against Texas A&M? Devontae Smith yeah, dove the, for that. The very first touchdown of the game. Yeah, no, I he know. Threw a, he threw a dime. It was, it was perfect, th- and he caught it in stride. Oh, this is hilarious. It was He literally, like, f- he fully stretched out and dove for it. <laughs> Go yeah, back and look it at it. I just... Well, I mean, I... I actually just watched it about an hour and 15 minutes ago. So, mm, all right. Should probably fake news, man. Check your sources. Anywho. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, no. I mean, I thought Alabama's offense I thought looked good, and I thought Texas A&M's defense for the most part, especially their front seven, played pretty well, actually. Um, so I, I just uh, you're you're really not going to get a whole lot of high-level thoughts on Alabama's offense for me. They're really good. This is by I mean, this is if 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 Oklahoma has an equal on offense this season, it's it's these guys. I mean, they're they're very very good on offense. Okay, you're right. He did die for it. Thank you. Good call. It was still a really good throw. Yeah, it reminded me of every time Texas scores a touchdown over the years. There's always a receiver diving, and it looked like one of those. Even though, thank God, that didn't happen in the Big Twelve title game. Yeah, for sure. Let's see. I have other. Here's my other notes. So on the Alabama offense, just like I. You know, I every time like a play happened in the game that stood out to me, I kind of took a note on it and just to kind of get an idea of what they do. Let's see, it's uh, a second and ten. Here we go. I have a lot of notes on this one for some reason. At some point, first half, second and ten, Alabama was in twenty personnel, so they had two running backs. Oh yeah, here we go. This is I I know exactly why I had this in there because it reminded me of Oklahoma's offense. They have a uh, twenty personnel with pistol, which means two running backs, no tight ends. And the running back is to Tua's left, and they actually had both Harris's in. They had one running back in the pistol behind Tua, and then another running back to Tua's left. And they fake it to the running back in the pistol, while the second guy comes out of the backfield on the old Texas route, and he's just wide open. And it looked to me like what Oklahoma likes to do at times with Trey Sermon or Carson Meyer when they go two backs and it's just such a great play because the linebackers get sucked into the run play because it's an RPO. And then the running back just pops right out in the vacated spot where the linebackers were. And I saw that one time against Texas A&M. I'll be curious to see if they do that a lot in other games. But that was one thing that stood out to me that it's just a very well-run, well-designed RPO play that I really enjoyed. And it reminded me a lot of what Oklahoma does sometimes. I know Oklahoma did that against Texas in the first game against them with Trey Sermon coming out of the backfield. And um, so that's something that it's almost looked like they took from Oklahoma's playbook. What other notes do I have here? Yeah, I, uh, they're they they have borrowed. I'm not going to say they've borrowed heavily from Oklahoma, but there's absolutely some influence there for sure. Um, there's another touchdown play, and it didn't even go to Irv Smith. It went to their other tight end, who's more of a blocking guy, and it was in the red zone. And they had two by two formations, so two running backs, two tight ends, and they had the uh, one tight end down and the other tight end as an up back behind the tight end. And they did a little fake pitch to the running back, and that up back tight end is blocking like it's going to be a run play. And then he just releases up the seam, wide open, touchdown. Uh, just another really well-designed play where it looks like run, looks like run. You get the linebackers to commit, and you see the tight end blocking, and you kind of think, oh, well, he's not going to be in this play at all. And he just releases into a wide open area for a touchdown. And that wasn't, again, that wasn't even Irv Smith. That was the... Uh, that was the backup blocking tight end, so they can use everybody. Kind of like Oklahoma. Oklahoma's not afraid to 
utilize all these different players on offense. And it seems like in that A&M game, Alabama had no problems utilizing a lot of different players as well. Can I say, Lee, that I, I am, you know, I can definitively say after watching Ole Miss and Texas A&M's defense, they do look every bit as uh, incompetent, maybe even more so playing zone coverage than Oklahoma does. So we're not alone. <laughs> I'm just saying they're off. Like at, for, for as well as Texas A&M's front seven played, they really were just completely awful in, in the back. I mean, my goodness, there was there, there really it's were almost some, like they're not used to seeing offenses that can stretch you out. Yeah. And, Peach through the air in the SEC. Weird. I mean that. Yeah, that might be it. But I and especially good Lord, Ole Miss's defense is just. I I Oklahoma's defense is better than Ole Miss's. Is all I have to say. So I don't I, I don't think OU had the worst power five D. Ole Miss is atrocious on defense. <laughs> like they're they they have the their their linebacker play is worse than OU's was last year, and that's saying a lot. <laughs> there, I, there was one. Uh, moment in the game in the first half that was pretty massive a&m was only down by eight it was 21 to 13 and it was late second quarter and they got bama into a third down and seven so third and medium and you and bama was the offense for whatever reason it 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 wasn't it was in a moment where it wasn't as sharp and it's like oh my gosh if bama can get them uh, a&m can get bama off the field here and get the ball back, they could potentially go and score and make this uh, a, either tie the game or before halftime because A&M's offense actually had a decent amount of success in the first half, which we'll get to here in a moment. So it was third and seven. In a two-by-two two set, A&M sold out and blitzed, trying to get pressure on Tua. And, of course, they just had a, a nice little hot route to Damian Harris in the flat, and Tua just swung it over to him for an easy just massive 50 plus explosive play and nobody accounted for the running back during the blitz and it just it was such a it was a play where AM almost like didn't even need to blitz but they were like okay let's get some pressure and just nobody accounted for the running back huge play in the game because it it gave bam obviously a first down a huge explosive play in the AM territory and they went on to score a touchdown to go up two scores there and was also there on out it was basically all Bama. Yeah, there was also a really bad missed tackle on that play too. It was downfield. It was after. Uh, it was Najee Harris who caught it, right? Or was it? Uh, it was, was it, no, it was Damian. It Harris. was Damian Harris. Okay, but yeah, it was. It was after Damian Harris. I think had already picked up the first down, but it could have been like a. It, if, if he would have made the tackle, it would have been like a fifteen-yard gain instead of a fifty-yard gain. But uh, yeah, actually, I specifically remember that play, Lee, and remember and just and thought, oh, that's a play I could absolutely see OU getting killed on. Oh so, yeah. yeah, yeah, just. You bring the blitz, and you don't account for the running back. And it seems like when Oklahoma brings the blitz, they usually do account for the running back, and they they don't account for the quarterback. <laughs> and yeah, and so, so uh, yeah, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, and Lee, after, and so this is this is my very early thoughts. Now, only watching two games, and this is you know from the first half of the season of Alabama's offense. Um, I I think OU's obvious game plan on defense need, does need to be in this one, just to balls to the wall, just try to shut down the run. And, and get Alabama into third and long and just kind of hope that they misfire every now and then on third down. I think that's 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 the pretty obvious game plan right now um, until I, you know, I'll, I'll look at it a little closer. But yeah, I mean, that makes sense because, I mean, as bad as Oklahoma is in the back end, Oklahoma is obviously at its best whenever other teams are struggling to run the football. Yeah. And Oklahoma's defense when is some, when Neville Gallimore more plays is not terrible at stopping the run. Mm-hmm. And, and I do want to I. I just want to mention too. I mean, 
one of the takeaways I had from that Texas A&M game, Lee, was thinking this, it, judging Texas A&M's defense of how they defended Alabama, that's an acceptable performance for Oklahoma in the Orange Bowl, as far as I'm concerned. If, if OU can play as well as A&M did against Alabama, I think OU can win this game. Um, and I say that and, just, just because OU's offense is, is going to pose much greater of a threat uh, than A&M did. So it's, it's, you know, A&M went three and out a handful of times in this game, and, and Alabama kind of capitalized on it every single time. So this is, if, I, I'm just saying, A&M was able to get Alabama in the third and long quite a bit. And if OU can do that in this game, I think, you know, that's their recipe for success on defense. It wasn't as much as, as, you're, as you think. I, got, I mean, I logged all the plays. It, they were in third and long just like a couple times. It wasn't was and, it not that bad. So, and, and and sometimes like they didn't get it. Like uh, the, the second possession for Alabama, they had a third and twelve, and they didn't get it. Uh, the next possession, they had a third and six, which they ended up picking up. But that was the only time they were on third down in that entire drive. Ended in a touchdown. The next drive uh, was gr- a great drive for A&M's defense. They they got A&M uh, – I keep mixing up A&M and Bama. They got Bama behind the chains immediately because they got a holding penalty, and Bama went backwards like 14 yards, and they had third and 20 yep. and nothing. You probably remember that. Uh, the next possession, they didn't even get a, into a third down. Oh, they had a third and one, and they picked, up that, picked that up. Uh, the next possession, that drive that we brought up a second ago where they got that big explosive pass play, the only third down of that drive was that, that conversion on third and seven. So – there wasn't a whole lot of third and longs actually uh, in the first half. There was honestly there was there was two times in the first half they were in third and long and they didn't get it either time. So th- what it was was A and M was stopping the run, but whenever Alabama decided to pass, which was on second down and early in the downs, then they they would get they'd give up yards. Uh, so as as much as that sounds great, I I'm, I'm kind of with you. I mean. But at the same time, Oklahoma's got to play better still because Tua and that offense got nine point four yards per play. <laughs> so it's, but I guess the to your point, we can talk about this in a second. Actually, let's tease it. I, I have one more note on the Alabama offense, which is kind of random and might not mean anything, but it kind of it might be something. And I just was curious if you noticed this too, Grant. And I'm curious to see if this happens when I watch more film. The wide receivers for Alabama. It seems like when they release and immediately run inside, the route is designed to almost always go to the outside. So you can tell Judy and Smith are trying to get that defensive back to commit to the inside before breaking out, which obviously gives them a leverage advantage. And again, I I realize this doesn't seem like a whole lot of stuff, maybe not big of a deal, because wide receivers are always trying to trick defensive backs while uh, running routes, but... I haven't seen two players be this obvious with their releases off the line all season long. And I mean, usually you'll see a bit of a fake at the top of a route before the wide receiver plants and then goes whichever way they're going to go. I don't know. To me, it just kind of seems like sometimes these guys give away immediately what they're going to do. So again, I'm going to have to watch a lot more of this, but I don't know if you're watching that closely. No, <laughs> but no. I just, it's just, I don't know. It's just like if I'm a, if I'm a corner, and I, you know, I'm playing zone, and I see these guys immediately release. Like, and I'm thinking, like, first thoughts, like they're gonna, they're gonna end up coming back out. A little seven route here. I just, that's my first thought. And if they don't, they don't. But that might give you a chance to make a break on a ball here and there on a maybe a timing route by Tua. So, those are my final Be thoughts what, on the off. Yeah, it's usually Motley, right, that breaks on those if he's going to. So, 
Yeah, we'll see. So let's move on to the Alabama defense. And let's see. Make sure that we're on point here. All right. We are on point. So, again, I'll give my thoughts on the defense, and I'll open up the floor for Grant. So I'm sure I'll see more of this as I watch more tape. Uh, but to me, it's not difficult to see why Alabama's defense is always good. And even in a year where the narrative has been, well, Bama's defense is good, but it's not as good as other Bama teams, I'm not sure that's true. Because to me, this defense looks like a Bama defense, and the reason it's so good is because Alabama confuses you in the back end. To me, it's very difficult to see what Alabama is trying to do sometimes in the secondary. For example, it would seem like Alabama kind of likes to go out and show a press cover to shell quite a bit and then they rotate into something else before the snap more like a cover one or a press cover three either way Bama does an incredible job of disguising its coverages which in college has got to be incredibly difficult for quarterback for the most part because you don't see a whole lot of that I think Iowa State does a good job of doing that as well yeah they do a good job of disguising coverages but they just don't play it the same way as Alabama yeah I know I was yeah, I, I know your point is just that that's one other team that disguises things. And yeah, I agree with you. But the reason why, you know, furthermore, Alabama's like, why it's so good is because they're corners. Bama's corners are constantly up on the wide receivers. Press technique, bump and run technique. They don't let wide receivers breathe. And I saw some video of Bama's practice the other day and a decent amount of scout team players, it looked like, were wearing number five jerseys, which was obviously signifying Marquise Brown. And it looked like the DBs they were practicing were just jamming the number fives and harassing the number fives off the line of scrimmage while they were doing drills. And if Brown plays in this game and he's not at 100%, I think Alabama's going to eat his lunch, guys. And it's just because of how physical – they are and a hobbled Hollywood just not going to be able to do much in my opinion and I think that really sucks I think it just really sucks that they if they don't have a hundred percent Hollywood it's going to limit Oklahoma so much against A&M the Bama defense came out in its base three four look to start and it, this made sense because A&M likes to use 12 and 22 personnel which means one running back two tight ends two running backs two tight ends basically multiple tight ends and then as the game went on Bama was giving up some yardage and then they went exclusively to their nickel package even with the multiple tight ends on the field they're like you know what forget it we're just going to go with our nickel package uh A&M's offense in the first half had some pretty good success 6.3 yards per play which A&M averages about six yards per play on the year so slightly above their season average against a, a good Bama defense A&M scored in the first half on three of its seven possessions but the problem was they had to settle for two field goals and they only scored one touchdown. And on seven, uh, on two of those seven possessions, A&M turned the ball over twice, and it led to 10 Alabama points. I noticed the quarterback run game with Kellen Mond gave Bama a little bit of problems. Mond had one explosive run play on a design quarterback drop the middle. It was a second and five. A&M caught Bama playing man while it was in its nickel package. And in a two-by-two two formation, the design quarterback draw to Mon went for 50-plus yards up the middle. And a big credit to Travion Williams, the running back, had a nice block up the middle. And the DBs had their backs turned because they were playing man coverage, and the linebackers were in coverage, got blocked by their man, and Mon had an explosive play up the middle. And that led to a touchdown on that drive. So uh, you better believe that Oklahoma's going to see this on tape, and they're going to try to scheme up some situations where Kyler can catch Bama playing man. But on the flip side, you know, Bama's not dumb. I mean, they. 
I would bet they they try to not play man that much and put a spy on Kyler all the time because the last thing Nick Saban's going to want is to have this guy beat him with his legs. So uh, later in the game against a and I, I noticed that Bama would have a linebacker responsible for Kellen Mond. However, A&M did go away from the design quarterback run game in the second half a little early, I thought. I was surprised because A&M had given up nearly a handful – or Bama, rather, had given up nearly a handful of chunk yardage plays when Mond would keep it on design run plays. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, Grant, the floor is now yours. What are your thoughts on the uh, Bama defense in this game? Well, yeah, I mean, first of all, with the Texas A&M game, the main takeaway for me is that – Really, the only success A and M really had moving the ball, I thought, was on was was on quarterback keepers. Uh, when they were getting chunk plays, it was only Kellen Mond, basically. Um, A and M is just A and M just did not have the guys up front to even compete with Alabama for the most part. I, they just I thought Alabama's defensive line just blew them up constantly on every play. I, when they got under the, when they got under center, A and M could not run the ball whatsoever. Um, I, I I don't think Kellen Mond is a particularly talented thrower of the football. Um, but I mean, they, they, they certainly struggled to tackle him in the open field whenever, especially when he got ahead of steam, you know, behind him. And, uh, you know, that was definitely the thing that stood out to me. And and also too, I I just, you know, going back to the Ole Miss game, they came out in nickel as well. That's, that, that's kind of how they defended Ole Miss that entire time. And I also noticed when, uh, uh, whenever A&M would go to three wide, a lot of the times Alabama would substitute and come out to nickel as well. So I, I guess, you know... It, it's hard for me to see, you know, a lot of chinks in the armor there, just because I, I don't, I don't think A and M was was really capable of stretching them that much, which is sort of concerning, seeing as that A and M probably had, you know, as much success as anybody who did have success against Alabama this year. So, um, I, I guess if there was one thing I have to point towards, Lee, um, in these two games that I've seen, maybe one opening is um, you said this looks like a regular Bama defense. I sort of disagree in the sense that I don't think their linebackers are anywhere as good as they as they have been in, in years. I think there is an opportunity um, for OU to kind of to really confuse Alabama over the middle of the fields, particularly their linebackers with Carson Meyer and, and like Calcaterra on RPOs. I, I think maybe that is their, is their obvious opening right there. Um, because really Alabama's linebackers I didn't think looked great um, in coverage. And, and re- I mean, that's that's just actually sort of nitpicking, but the first thing that comes to mind, Lee, is, Alabama, or is, is Texas A&M's first touchdown of the game to Sternberger over the middle, um, which is a total bust by the linebackers in coverage. They were confused. I was trying to figure out what happened on that play. If you watch it, I watched it back like 10 times. The middle linebacker, I think Mac Wilson, I have no idea what he was doing on that play. He, all, he just turns and just runs to the right corner of the end zone. And it, it didn't make any sense because it looked like he was responsible for Sternberger, or at least I can't remember if they were playing zone. or I couldn't tell what they were playing because Mac Wilson looked like he was incredibly lost. And instead of being in the middle of the field, getting deep, he just made a beeline for like, like he was playing cover three as a corner. It was the weirdest thing ever. And just he like ran himself right out of the play. Yeah. And, and Sternberger was wide open. And, you know, things things might change as we watch more film on Alabama. But if, you know, if I had to pick anything from what I saw in these first two games I've seen, if there's any opportunity, you know, you know what Riley likes to do, and this is what all Big 12 offensive coaches like to do. They like to find your, the weaknesses and, you know, in your defense, they like to pick it like a scab. Um, and I that's kind of the first opening that I see there. It would not surprise me if, if Lincoln Riley goes over, goes after Mac Wilson in coverage is what I'm saying. 
um, especially with someone like Calcaterra. Maybe I wouldn't be surprised. Let's say you know, uh, if Hollywood or, or someone of the like is um, is a little healthier, maybe Lee Morris as well. I think is a really favorable matchup against Mac Wilson over the over the middle of the field. Um, that that might be it right there is is getting him in the RPO game and going to Meyer over the middle and Calcaterra and Morris over the middle. That that might be where they could have some success. A dream thought for me. And I noticed this a couple times early in the game when A&M was in their you know, 12, 12 and 22 personnel and Bama was out there with four linebackers. Yeah, we're not going to see four linebackers. I mean, they're going to play nickel and dime against Oklahoma. But whenever they had four linebackers out there, man, I, their linebackers on the especially on the edges are slow. And I mean, there was like Travion Williams just beat a linebacker to the corner and like just Oklahoma going like, with their speed going up against these slow linebackers on the because like I mean they're built for the SEC and you know teams can't stretch it as much I mean that's why they're not going to do that a lot but just a dream scenario would be like for some reason Bama's like you know what we think we're going to be best playing 3-4 and Oklahoma's like all right cool well we're just going to go ahead and just spread you out and use our speed and beat your really slow linebackers there's a there's a zero percent chance (laughs) I I, I, I I wouldn't we're we're not going to see. I don't think any three four from Bama. I mean, this game at all. well, it's, I mean, it's going to it's going to be mean, all short yardage. Line. I mean, they're going to bring in big guys, you know, down near the goal line, things like that. But that's standard. But yeah, I, um, over the middle of the field, yeah, they seem the linebackers seem to be more like, like run coverage guys. I mean, they blitz a decent amount. They they sit Mac Wilson. He's no Roquan Smith, but they're not afraid to blitz him up the middle a decent amount. I can't tell. Sometimes I'm a, he might be a green dog blitzer, or he might honestly he might be spying the quarterback. And instead of just kind of waiting for the quarterback to make a move, it seems like sometimes he's like, "Screw it! I'm just gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna attack right now and make this quarterback make a play." So I mean, he's a good player. He's a good player, definitely. But I can I can see that where maybe over the middle. And here's the thing: you mentioned the A&M offensive line. I texted some people that I know that still cover A and M, and because I, you know, I used to cover them. Obviously, and I'm just curious. You know, at that time of the year, how was A and M's offense, especially the offensive line, perceived to be? And all I got back was over the season, the A and M offensive line has improved. But I look back at some other articles. Apparently, the offensive line was a pretty big question mark coming into this season for Texas A and M, and that was, I think, the third or fourth game of the year. So, I think it's fair to say that the A&M offensive line at that point of the season probably wasn't that good. And it showed, I mean, like you said, A&M's offensive line could just, could not, could not handle the front seven of Alabama. And what it did was, is that anytime A&M wanted to throw the football, (laughs) A&M didn't have to blitz. I mean, they got pressure on Mond in literally two to three seconds, every single time. And it was a struggle for Mon to throw the football and they had to earn every single yard they got. And there's a couple couple of throws where he made really nice throws and pressure situations, step up in the pocket, delivering the ball into a tight window. And he's gotten a lot better. Jimbo Fisher has done a, a nice job with Mond. But the question is though, can Oklahoma's offensive line provide a lot more time whenever Bama only brings, you know, five guys? It seems like Bama always likes to kind of bring five players. Even when they're blitzing, they'll drop a guy. It seems like five is kind of the – they always want to bring five, and then when they really want to get after you, they'll bring an extra blitzer and bring six. So can – my early read of this game, the simple read is this game might be won and lost by Oklahoma's offensive line and Kyler Murray, simply put, because if they can give time, 
and force those Bama corners and safeties to some extent to actually play a little more coverage for more than two or three seconds, that's not that easy. You can't, I mean, it's really easy to play tight press coverage whenever you know you only got to play coverage for three seconds. Yeah, Lee, I, that, I mean, really, that was the main takeaway for me watching those first two games. Ole Miss and Texas A&M lacked any semblance of an offensive line to challenge Alabama. They just could not hold up at all. Um, and presumably that that will you know that will not be the case playing Oklahoma for Alabama. So um, I, I just I can't even hopefully I, hopefully hopefully I mean, hopefully. Uh, but I, what I, we see I, from Oklahoma's offensive line is great. I but, can't I cannot yeah. emphasize enough how much of a mismatch Alabama's defensive line against both of those offensive lines were. I mean it was a a, a just a very apparent mismatch. They well what they did is at least A and M they always double teamed Quinn and Williams. It seemed like he always had two guys on him, which obviously frees up another elite Alabama defensive lineman and just all these random guys were getting into the backfield and Quinn and Williams made like a play or two but for the most part he was held in check because he was getting double teamed all day from what I saw from A&M but it didn't matter because other guys are really good too and they were I mean they sacked him on like five times yeah yeah so I, I just I'm Alabama looks really good you know I, they're they're incredibly talented uh, especially their defensive line is 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 just very very good um what else here? Oh, Lee, uh, one thing I do want to bring up, and, and I'm not sure because I, I, I was sort of Googling as we were going, but you were talking about their secondary and, and how physical they are. Um, it is, I think it is worth mentioning, Lee, that the guy I thought when I watched these first two games that stood out the most to me was their corner, Trevon Diggs. He's hurt. He has a broken foot. So mm. that is, that's a big deal because that guy is huge, and he is, he's like physically intimidating. And he is... Yeah, I, don't think that he is going to be on the field for them. And if he is, we, we haven't heard anything about it. But he was hurt in early October. He broke his foot, and he hasn't played since. So uh, we'll see. We'll see where he is. Okay. But um, I, I, thought, I thought physically he was the most Im- impressive uh, corner that Alabama had. And he is, he's not playing right now. So that's, uh, that's important to, to note, I think. But that doesn't mean they don't have any players there. Patrick Sertan, the second, is a, is a freshman who, who made a really nice uh, ball skill play against Bama on a, on a pick. Or I'm sorry, against A and M on a pick as well. Deontay Thompson is a unanimous All American oh, yeah. that was a safety. Great play. Yeah, it's so. I mean, they got some players back there, but um, I, you know, it, it is significant that that's it's a possibility that Trevon Diggs will not play in this game because that guy, that guy is is talented. That that's that's a first round NFL pick if I've ever seen one. He's just he's big, he's long. Uh, Did that, you notice though in the Ole Miss game? Because I, the very uh, when Ole Miss had that really long touchdown the very beginning of the game and that was all they had that was against Diggs. yeah yeah but that i mean that and they, was and they pulled him for the next series he was out they put somebody else i think it might have been sertan yeah and then they brought him back in the the next series so like they punished him basically like, oh you got you got burned on a huge explosive play we're gonna take you out for a series and then they brought him back in after that but i thought that was kind of interesting that bama doesn't mess around like gave a big play you're out sorry you got to learn from that. Yeah, that was li- that was like the only positive thing that Ole Miss did in that entire game. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a tough one for Ole Miss fans. Get so pumped up, and then the defense from Ole Miss literally gives up a touchdown like two minutes later, and it was all downhill from there. I just looked up on the uh, college football sports reference page, and it says that Diggs is uh, will miss the remainder of the season. Well, so. there you go. I don't, I don't think he's supposed to be back. So, yeah, I'll be interested to watch him more than when, later in the season when Diggs is not playing. And, you know, so he's interesting poll. Yeah, he, he's been out for like two months now. So Sure, sure. I mean, so, like, they're used to it by they, now. They, yeah. They've theoretically, you know, recovered from that. But 
but still, I mean that that was a that's a talented player that Alabama's not going to have, and he I th- I thought he was a he was a prominent player um, in Alabama's defense in the two games that I watched, and he's no longer there, so. Um, We'll, mm-hmm. we'll see, but you know Patrick Sertan. I think presumably. Are we sure that A and M has any depth on defense? <laughs> oh, Bam! You mean Bama? Oh, did I say A and M again? Yeah, we keep doing. Yeah, that. I meant. Nah, that's so weird. Yes, yeah, I that think was a, that was my attempt at a really bad joke. Obviously, yes. it didn't hit. Yes, in all likelihood, they have depth on defense. Yes, yes, they 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 probably do. Let's see the one other note I had. It's not even really a note. I just noticed uh, that Jalen Waddle is their punt returner in that game. I didn't really see any special teams things. I did see their kicker kick like a long field goal, so he might not be as terrible as other Alabama kickers are. I was surprised that Jalen Waddle didn't do much in that game. Maybe Waddle is one of those guys who's kind of come on more at the end of the season because he was obviously very good in the SEC title game. And I haven't watched a bunch of Bama tape like as much as I've watched Oklahoma, obviously. So I'm interested to see how much how Jalen Waddle's role in the offense kind of grows as I watch more tape. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, let's see here. What else? I feel like I had another. Oh, yeah. Um, let's see. I'll, 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 I'll give so, sort of my uh, kind of my early S&P takes as well. I've, I've been sort of looking through this, the statistical profiles, uh, just seeing, you know, where OU could attack them. And, Lee, I mean, it's 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 kind of a murky picture attacking Alabama's defense. Um Really, the the only thing Lee that they're that they're not excellent at is preventing big plays, um, and it just it turns out that Oklahoma is the most explosive team maybe in the history of college football. But that's with Hollywood Brown, so so that that could come into play. I know. Uh, but early on, uh, that 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 appears to be the way that you get Alabama's defense is by getting chunk plays on them. Because other than that, they're they're pretty much elite at at everything. My last thought on this before we move on is for some that's more intelligent than I am I wonder I mentioned a while ago that when I watch Bama's defense it just seems like they confuse the offenses so much because they're not really sure Uh, a quarterback maybe is not 100% sure of what coverages are and I mean that's a great defense does that so it makes me wonder is there a way to watch enough tape on Bama as an offensive coordinator as an offensive mind to chart enough and somebody that has more experience than I do obviously to kind of figure out in certain scenarios can you expect a certain coverage or a certain idea from a Saban defense? And if so, then can you have you know a beater for that coverage? Because there's obviously beaters for every single coverage. And it just makes me wonder if, you know, even though it's going to be difficult to figure out what they're trying to do, because they're going to try to disguise it so much, is there ways to know, you know, think, hey, it's second down, this part of the field, you know, they're in nickel personnel. Like they're they're probably in press cover three here. Because I know, actually, I think press cover three is kind of a Nick Saban thing, and I've been trying to read some articles on his defense yeah, and the how mass, the mass dynamic it is. Spring. Yeah, it's just it's so it's so high level for college, and I know like I think NFL teams do. I mean, it's supposedly it's more popular nowadays, but yeah, he does the pattern uh, matching quarters coverage, and just yeah, their their DBs are just they communicate so well with each other, and they're all just they're so good, and I mean they're taught. I watched some old video about like how he teaches read steps a certain way for his corners that is different than kind of the back pedal and you know he doesn't teach the whole you know like well you see how like there's a bail technique a lot of the time and you'll see kind of like Parnell Motley do this and he'll turn around and he looks like he's lost like it seems like Saban the way he teaches read steps you're always kind of shuffling so you're always kind of an athletic position to make a move either way and it just it, it so much attention to detail about how to play pass coverage and it's really annoying to me that Bama plays in a conference where only a couple of teams really can exploit you through the air. It's like 
Would all of this stuff work in the Big 12? I don't know. I, they would have a lot of success because it's just a lot of talented players, but I'd like to see them go against, like we talked about for years and years and years. About eventually, how the Big 12, eventually someone would uncover a way to beat it. And they yeah. would, and the, and then the Big Twelve coaches would go to it again and again and again until <laughs> and, until until the defense adjusts. That is yeah. why it's so brutal to to coach defense in the Big Twelve. Because I mean, say what you want about the Big Twelve, the the offensive coaches in that conference are just far and away superior to to, to pretty much everyone else. I mean, they're it's the, the the Big Twelve offensive coaches are are you know are spilling over into the NFL. I mean, they're it's there's mm-hmm. just it's. It, they're playing a different game in the Big 12, and I realize the defenses aren't as talented. But from a schematical standpoint, there, there's just there's nothing like like you, um, like the Big 12 when it comes to to offenses and um, and detractors from that theory will point to bowl games over the years against Big 12 teams and other conferences and say, hey, look, that your Big 12 offense didn't do as well against this team, blah blah. But that's a one-off thing where. Anything can happen whenever you get two, three, four weeks to prepare for an offense. The whole point about the Big 12 is that week to week to week, you don't get a break unless you're playing a Kansas or randomly a Kansas State, which, you know, I'm curious to see what happens with Kansas State. Just a crazy side note with their new head coach coming from North Dakota State. That's pretty interesting. But, you know, that's the whole point of the Big 12 was like the grind of going every single week against offense to offense to offense that can't exploit you. Yeah, you just don't get that everywhere else. I know. I, I also I do want to bring up one. Um, everyone everyone conveniently for uh, everyone kind of conveniently forgets uh, the one year that TCU got left out of the the playoff league with Trevon Boykin and whatnot. They played Ole Miss in the in the Peach Bowl that year. Ole Miss, who I believe had the number one defense in the country, and I think TCU beat them forty one to nothing or something like that. Everyone sort of forgets about that. Um, it was like forty one to nine or something. Yeah, but, I like mean they they, they they beat the piss out of them. I mean it was. It was not even close, <laughs> but um, and also too, Lee. Just this is more just scatter scatter shot in my brain here. Uh, Cliff Kingsbury going to USC is incredibly incredibly interesting. Yeah, um, yeah. His, I, I watching that USC Notre Dame game. I just came away thinking JT Daniels and the receivers they had would just look great in an air raid, and they're going to get you know one of the best. So I, I think that's going to be so interesting to see how that transforms USC um, because I I mean. That was a great hire that that Clay Helton made. Clay Helton's not a good head coach. Uh, give him his due for that. That's an that's an outstanding hire, and I think he should get credit for that. I mean, Kingsbury reportedly was getting looks from the NFL too. So I mean, he's a he's a guy who obviously what was he's like roughly around five hundred at Texas Tech. But I mean, now that he's not there anymore, he's gonna he could potentially go on to have a pretty darn good career as a coordinator. And just to kind of settle himself in as one of those kind of offensive guys, yeah, I'm curious to see how his how his career progresses now that he'll get players that are, I mean, blue chippers. It's still USC's down, but they're still going to get good players. They're going to get better players than Texas Tech would get, and that conference hasn't really seen an offense like that yet. The last time the Pac-12 had any sort of like different kind of fun offenses was the Chip Kelly in Oregon, and that whole idea is kind of kind of old now. So and the Pac-12 has been awful this year. I mean, it's just been brutal. And I guess I mean Mike Leach is there with Washington State. So I mean, there you go. And but the the, the caliber of player obviously at USC is going to be a lot better than at Washington State. That's all I got on Bama talk. I, we, that's a good stuff. We had a lot more than I thought we did today. Um, what do you want to go to next? Do you have any preference? Well, I don't know. I, I kind of I wrote here about playoff expansion a little bit because we did go heavy on that in our last podcast a week ago. And of course, the day that we released that podcast, the story on the Athletic broke that Nicole Auerbach wrote 
uh, where where the Big 12s, Bob Bowlesby, Barry Alvarez, and and, and Gordon G, the the West Virginia president, uh, they were heavy heavy sources for Nicole Auerbach in that story. And basically, they said uh, we're ready to look into eight team expansion for the playoff. Um, and when those guys talk, that's that's significant. Especially Barry Alvarez is the big one. That guy has a lot of sway over college football. Hmm. And so, um, hey, I, I just you know I thought it was interesting. And you know, in the in the article too, it says that some would like to see it happen by 2020. Um, and the reason that is because that's halfway through the original 12 year contract. And, and I guess there's just stuff with like um, with, with sponsorship revenue and stuff where they would be able to kind of seamlessly transition into something else. I guess. Um, but anyway, I, I just thought it was interesting, and and it kind of ha- has started off the conversation again. And I, I've seen a lot of just continuously just a lot of terrible takes that I disagree with, um, just about the na- <laughs> just the nature of college football. And um, I mean, how many times do I have to? I, I just I'm so sick of the argument that it'll devalue the regular season. It's such a terrible argument. Um, it is one of the worst arguments for anything in the history of sports. Yeah, I one think of the worst argument. And, and you know, what? I, I think I think that argument is I don't think the argument's made in bad faith or anything. I think the argument is made under the assumption that what makes college football great is the fact that, um, you know, basically, if you lose, you're done. Your season's over. Um, and I just I, I, you know, that's sort of been conventional wisdom for a long time. And sure. just and, and to say it, I'm just going to say it bluntly. It's wrong. It's just, it's it's completely wrong. What makes college football great, and I'm going to continue beating the drum. It is the tradition. It's the pageantry. It's the passion. It is not because it is not because once you lose a game, you're crushed and your season is over. That's not what makes it great. Um, I, I've I've had imminently more fun watching college football these you know these last few years and the last four years of the of the playoff than I have earlier. It's it, it's a lot more enjoyable knowing your season's not over after a single loss. And that that's just facts. Yeah, all that stuff that you said about why college football is great, and you know what you kind of left out. It, it also it's because it's football. Because football is great, and there's urgency in football, and it's not going to devalue the regular season because there's so few games in the regular season, and there's so few football games in general. And something that I saw this week going into Week 15 of the NFL that I found incredibly fascinating. Did you see that? What 26 of the 32 teams were technically still alive for a playoff spot? And granted, yeah, some of them like Baker Mayfield's Browns are like one or five percent. Like it's probably not going to happen. But the fact that you still can make the playoffs this late in the year and more than 80 percent of the NFL technically still has a chance to make the playoff uh, playoffs. All of those teams, even though they're some of them have like basically no shot, the fact that they still have a slimmer a glimmer of hope gives them something to play for, which therefore gives the fan base something to like, Hey, you know what? That's kind of cool. Like if everything crazy happens for us and our team wins, then there's still a shot to make the playoffs and the season can continue. Meanwhile, with like three weeks to go in the college football season, you know, what percentage of teams were still alive for the college football playoff? 6%, 10%, maybe, maybe if that, so the other 90% of college football, you know, who cares? Like, why would they care that much about their team? So it's just, that's why it wouldn't devalue the regular season. It would make the regular season so much better because late in the year, you'd have scenarios where a higher percentage of teams have something to play for, which is fun. I mean, how fun was the, and maybe we can transition to this now. I don't know if you're done talking about the playoff because I don't have a whole lot to add to that. 
Uh, Do you have any no. more playoffs? Yeah, I mean, I was it? just I I wanted to bring up some some concerns that I had with everything. Um, it sounds like it. I mean, it sounds like a lot of you know. It sounds like even if they did go to eight, that the conference championship games wouldn't go anywhere. Um, which which honestly is because the SEC wants it so badly, it's beca- right? It's, beca- it's 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 solely because of the SEC. Yes. Ugh. Um, and that's that's a that's a non-starter for me. Complete non-starter for me. I, I I do not want any expansion if conference championship games still exist. Complete non-starter. Sure, I'm with you. Uh, I can't I can't emphasize this enough. SEC, I could not care less about what you think about this. I don't care that you think the SEC title game is integral for college football and don't use this past SEC title game how their ratings are really high and how oh it just shows that college football fans want to watch the SEC title game it's so important you know why people wanted to watch that game because it was essentially a playoff game (laughs) I mean for Alabama it was win and you knock Georgia out for Georgia it was essentially you win and you're probably into the playoff along with Alabama that's why so many people watched that game and sure it was a really good game that helped a lot too but your argument is based off of, okay, so you're telling me every single SEC title game then is so highly watched and everybody wants to watch it? No. No, the South wants to watch it. People in the SEC do. Take that away. It's not that big of a deal because then you add a playoff game and way more people will watch a playoff game than the SEC title game, especially in a year where, unlike this season, it doesn't matter that much. So, I mean, it's such a terrible argument. And it's just the SEC, the the, the people that are trying to protect their contracts and they're used to the way things have always been. And, and they are a conference that I guess you could argue has ran college football because people like to point to how many national championships the sec has won over X amount of years. But in in reality, it's basically Alabama and every once in a while, you know, you have your Auburn uh, and you'll have your LSU back in the early two thousands and mid two thousands, a random year. But for the most part, it's just, it's Bama. Bama's so good. And then, I mean, now Georgia's really good too. Don't the rest of the conference is just a conference, and it's it's not a good argument to me when you say, "Hey, SEC dominates because look at all those national championships." Sure, you got scoreboard technically, but it's because Alabama's in that conference. If Alabama wasn't in that conference, it wouldn't be the same. And so, this is my SEC. I don't care what you think rant, and I'm pretty proud of it. Okay, let's see here. Where can I, where can I go from there? Um, <laughs> I don't know. You said I, other I, other issues. I mean, you said other issues that you didn't you didn't like that the the conference title games would be there. You mentioned so you don't like that. Any other issues that that uh, that were yeah coming no up in I this guess article? I, I suppose well no okay so let me first go with this you know I I I do not like the fact that the SEC is 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 basically running college football and I think that that is clearly the case um, and and hey I'm the type of guy I will concede that the SEC has better players than everyone else. Yes, I understand that they have the most draft picks. So will I. They've won. So yes, will I. That I. I get that. Yes, they do. They are more talented players in that conference by far than any other conference. I get it. Yes. That does not mean that you should control college football. And I, I just, they, they are playing by a different set of rules, and they're already better than everyone else. I, I think that that is that is the truth. They are so much better at the top than everyone else, and they are playing by a, a different set of rules that are advantageous to them. And I have a problem with that. Just, ju- mm-hmm. ju- just as a principled matter, as someone who likes athletic competition, I have a huge problem with that. Um, and I'm the type of person I, I don't, you know, I don't like universal control. I, I don't like, you know, going to the NCAA and saying, "Hey, I think you guys should just completely handle all of this." All, of, but 
unfortunately, that needs to happen. That ne- there needs to be a governing body of college football. I just it's I don't want the SEC to run this sport. I just I just do not. It's it's not. It, if the SEC runs this sport, it's it's going to just become more of a regional sport, and I don't think it's going to have much of a national footprint anymore. Outside, you know, OU, OU, we're all OU fans are always going to be into it, and the big time programs are. But I just it, it's not good if the SEC completely controls the sport, and and I just I don't see any other. Uh, that's that's what I see happening right now. Uh, the SEC, I, I think, is just kind of has the entire sport hostage right now. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. ESPN has a hand in it. Um, the the ads have a hand in it. It's it's all it's it's so dumb. I just, um, I mean, it already has become a regional sport. I mean, it's always kind of been a regional sport, but it's making it even worse now. I mean, if you're out west, what gives you any sort of interest in the college football playoff? Because the Pac-12 has been terrible for the last two years. Nobody in the playoff in the Pac-12. I mean it. It's a, it's a regional sport. We've, we've seen Clemson-Bama every single year for the last three years at some point. I mean, it could probably going to be four years in a row. That's what the odds are telling us. So, yeah, it's an incredibly regional sport. And I'm not saying that a, a bigger playoff would essentially prevent that from happening, but it would just it would provide more hurdles for that to happen again. I mean, you wouldn't give all this time off. I mean, imagine uh, this is uh, this is I mean, this goes for Oklahoma, too, because, I mean, we don't know about Marquise Brown, but I mean, what if. What if Alabama had to come back and, and play two weeks after the SEC title game? I mean, Tua's not going to be ready. They, they have to play with Jalen Hurts. I mean, yeah, injuries suck, but that would affect things. I mean, you wouldn't get all this time off. I mean, in the NFL, you only you go from the regular season ending to the playoffs, and you'll have time okay, to heal I, up. I think you're getting a little too far into the weeds. I mean, th- this is— Yeah, you're probably The right. SEC is better than everyone else. That is, a, that is an indisputable fact. I am just I am upset that they are running the sport and they are playing by a different set of rules. That is all. I do not okay. think because they are better than everyone else they should play. They should they should by default get advantages over everyone else. That doesn't make any sense to me. Everyone should be playing on the same uh, on the same level. The SEC is not right now. They are gaming the system clear. and they do not need to game the system because they're already better than everyone else. And I just I, I as someone who likes competition, I think it's just bad for sport in general. So let's just be clear though. The way they are gaming the system is the whole extra non-conference game, correct? They don't play yes. as many conference yes. games. Yes, that that is, is that why. yes. So basically, that's it. So Thank like you. They, yeah, that's why they're they they have they have a very very advantageous schedule set up right now. Um, Not to mention, if you're in the SEC East, you're basically getting a a cakewalk oh, if you're good to yeah, the that, SEC title game. That reminds me what I was going to say earlier because you were talking about the SEC championship game. A lot of these people are living are, are being prisoners of the moment. The last 2 years we've had, you know, a de facto playoff a playoff game as the SEC championship game. Where were the people I, you don't hear people arguing one way, or, you know, for this in the years where the East produces a champion that's 7 and 5 or 8 and 4 and they just get blown off the field. And those games which are just is basically the last, like every year prior to the last which two. Basically, the last three years, the three years leading last up three? to the last okay. two, where Florida and and Missouri were just getting Missouri. blown off the field in the SEC championship game. Did that game need to happen? Like, come on. By the way, Missouri just going into the SEC and like made the SEC title game like in like the second year for made, in, like made, multiple times. Made the SEC title game two out of the first three years they were in the conference because yeah. they went right into the East and because the East was garbage and they... And Missouri was also kind of like... Missouri was fine. I mean, they made the Big 12 title game like once or twice. 
you know, while they were there. So it's like they were a bad team, but yeah, they just went into the SEC and really had no problems. Missouri in the was a when they left the Big Twelve, they were a perpetual seven and five and eight and four team in the Big Twelve. And they stepped That's right. This in, is like a whole nother thing too. Yeah, right? I know. They stepped Sorry right. For even I, it up. Yeah, I know. They stepped right into the SEC East and went to the title game. Um, you know, two or three. You say something about A and M too. A and M went into the SEC. I mean, mainly that. In hindsight, that was mostly Johnny Manziel and uh, all those great offensive linemen and Mike Evans. But um, yeah, I mean, A and M did a pretty good job in the SEC right away too. At least with Manziel, and but I'm not gonna, really since. Yeah, I just I, I want to bring up just another thing that bugged me over the course of the weekend. Um, and this is more just this is being hyper specific, but it, it bugged me. Um, you know, Clay Travis is a guy who's a huge SEC homer. Um, he came out saying that he favors the 18 playoff, uh, but he said he just he prefers it just to be. Uh, he he doesn't like automatic qualifiers. He just wants the top eight. Um, it you know, in the playoff rankings to get in. I really wish he would just come out and say it's because he wants the SEC to get more teams in. And that is the only reason why he uh, he supports that. And and anybody arguing yeah. along the same lines, it is so transparent. That is the only reason why. Just come out and freaking say it. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't understand the mentality that the SEC footprint has. The fan- What is... Because, like, I mean, I listen to Clay Travis a lot. I think he's pretty interesting. Uh, Weirdly enough, a lot of his sports takes aren't aren't as good as they probably should be because he's a, a sports guy. But when it comes to SEC football, I mean, he's he knows a lot about it. What's the deal with the SEC? And I know this has always been like a joke for years and years and years because they all, no matter what, all the fan bases chant SEC, SEC. Why do they want to see they they always want to see Bama and everything? Like I don't understand like the love affair with like oh my team's not in it, but oh we got to see more SEC teams. Bama, Bama, Bama. Like, it's such a weird thing. Like, imagine if Oklahoma, like, okay, imagine if you're a Texas fan. Like, are you constantly just like, you know what? Yeah, Oklahoma, woo, yeah. Oklahoma, Oklahoma, Oklahoma. Because, I mean, Oklahoma's obviously had more success than Texas over the last however many years. I mean, no, Texas fans don't say, don't think that way. And I'd like to think that Oklahoma supporters, we wouldn't, if Oklahoma was down, we wouldn't, and Texas was like really good, we wouldn't be like, yeah, you got to hope that Texas gets in. And yeah, yeah. yeah. And, I just think that's a weird mentality to have with it seems like the SEC just has that with especially Alabama obviously because Alabama is always so good it's a culture thing and and the yeah. rhetoric the, the rhetoric also directly works to their advantage as well everyone in the SEC I know yeah. so I, I it's I, I know it always it's it sucks because this always sounds like sour grapes when people are you know discussing stuff like this but I'm just Let's just come out and say facts. They have an unfair advantage over the rest of college football, and they don't need one because they're already more talented than everyone else. Yeah, they're essentially – all their SEC teams are essentially getting one extra win every year. And I'm sorry, Kentucky, Florida, and LSU, those yeah. teams suck. They would be smoked pretty much by every team in the top eight right now. <laughs> After, just smoked, complete. Like, and I'm, we're going to talk about it in a couple weeks when it comes up. UCF is going to smoke LSU, and people are going to be surprised when it happens. And I'm just I'm I'm sick of this crap. So like Alabama's great, Georgia's great. The rest of the SEC this year is just so incredibly average with the rest of college football. So people just need to really calm down. They need to actually watch these teams. They need to see if they're actually like they actually have good players. Kentucky went nine and three this year. Kentucky is is not a good football team. Yeah, Kentucky. I'm not sure they have an offense. I'm not sure they know how to move the football at Kentucky. Yet somehow they won nine games. That's a that's a shocking development, but hey, good for Mark Stoops. Good for Mark Stoops. Um, I, I'll be one of those people shocked if UCF K 
kills LSU. I'll tell you that much. I'll be super surprised, especially because last year we already saw Auburn get embarrassed by UCF, and now you got another SEC team. They're not going to want to have that happen to them. So, uh, well, LSU struggles to move the ball against air. So, yeah, well, UCF's defense is pretty bad. It's really bad, actually. And I can't you just imagine LSU just using their big physical no and just running the no, ball? No, their run game has not been good this year. It's not a good run game. <laughs> their has offense been, is what about what about against like bad defenses though? I bet it's probably pretty good. No, their offense has been bad no. across the board. It has not been good. All right, all right. Yeah, you know, I mean, I don't think it's as bad as you say it is, but I don't think it's good. Let's see here. We uh, we teased it before, and I feel like we teased it months ago, but we didn't talk about. Let's let's just do it for let's, let's talk about Baker Mayfield. If you're listening this long, you clearly just want to hear us talk about stuff, and I appreciate that. Baker Mayfield and the Browns got to six, seven, and one Saturday night, Grant. And I'll just say it: I've had a phenomenal time this NFL football season watching Baker Mayfield. It's been great to be in Oklahoma because nearly every single Browns game has been on with the exception of a couple uh, so ba- Mayfield's been on and especially lately when the Browns have been a lot better since firing Hugh Jackson and Todd Haley which first of all let me get into that real quick the fact that the Browns since Todd Haley and Hugh Jackson got fired the Browns have already won more games than Hugh Jackson won in the previous two and a half years as the head coach in Cleveland this guy there's no chance right that this guy's ever going to get another head coaching job ever I mean legitimately Greg Williams and Freddie Kitchens as interim coaches has already won more games in six or seven weeks than Hugh Jackson won in two and a half years that is so bad and I pray for Bengals fans if that that franchise is really going to plan on firing Marvin Lewis and then hiring Hugh Jackson as a head coach. I I am so sorry, Bengals fans, if that's what happens, because you might as well just just give up your season tickets and never watch that team again until they actually make changes, because that would be an absolute atrocity. Open four for you, Grant, on uh, Hugh Jackson, Todd Haley, and all that mess, if you have any comments, because I just think that's hilarious right now that the Browns have already won more games since they've been fired than they won in two and a half years. Yeah, Lee, I used to, uh, I used to be a pretty big proponent of... I, I, I've genuinely used to think that coaching was not the most important thing in the NFL that it was really really about the stars that you had on your team that's starting to change in the NFL now um they're just I it's being clear I mean the Browns got some players and I think that's pretty obvious and they couldn't do anything the first whatever how many weeks of the season it was um and the first eight weeks I believe it was the first eight weeks I think the first eight games and I don't I and then he got fired how else what can you chalk up to that other than just coaching incompetence I don't think you can and you know what I've it's I my mind has started to change the last two years I'm a Colts fan and I'm seeing just the difference um this season um with the Colts based off you know compared to the 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 five years under Chuck Pagano I mean hell Lee they were one in five at the beginning of this year and in my mind I was thinking oh my god they look so much better than they have the last four years because they're just better coached (laughs) interesting Um, and and I don't know I I think it's becoming pretty on the flip side real quick the Eagles losing Frank Reich the Eagles offense has been a shell of itself yeah yeah they've been bad They, they haven't been good this year at all and so um and you see I mean for for five years, the Colts arguably had the worst offensive line in the league. Frank Wright comes in in one year; they arguably have the best offensive line in the league. I mean, th- this stuff is not a coincidence. So, um, 
it's becoming just, speaking of it's becoming pretty clear to line. me that I think mm-hmm. you know it, it's that coaching is a huge deal. And also, I'm in Minnesota watching the Vikings. Their offensive coordinator just got fired as well. Um, I watched that Monday night game against the Seahawks, and just the play calling on display in that game was was just downright incompetent at all levels. Um, and then you also you see guys like. Um, Who's who's actually ironically who's the Seahawks offensive coordinator right now who is who has never had uh, like every Schottenheimer offense, every Brian offense, Schottenheimer like he's he's coordinated over ten offenses in the NFL and all of them have been between twentieth and thirty second ever and he keeps getting jobs which just yep. tells me that the NFL has got to to some extent has got to just be an old boys crew who are who are just rigid and will not change and Seattle's having success this season but Seattle's offense has been atrocious actually seattle's I mean, offense like is russell having success not having a good year because russell I mean, he's Wilson a really good quarterback awesome. yeah yeah like even like in a bat like a bad statistical year because of i mean brian schottenheimer's a coordinator let's be real that's why i mean russell wilson is still really good obviously i mean he was statistically awful in that monday night game but just even though he was so bad like he still looked good because he's a really good player and he's very mobile and he's smart and he had that huge run at the end of the game. And even in a bad stat game for Russell Wilson, he was still better than Kirk Cousins in that game. Oh, that's and right. Because he's just he's yeah. he's an elite player. Yeah, actually, uh, we we kind of rag on Colin Cowherd a lot on this show, but he had he had one of the best takes, sports takes, just in terms of just how logically sound it was uh, that I've really ever seen after that game. And I would I would really encourage people to go back to try to listen to it. But he he did a really great job of painting the picture. Um, the difference between someone like Kirk Cousins and Russell Wilson. And basically, he did such a great job of summarizing the problem with someone like Kirk Cousins. It's like a guy who's always had decent stats, but he can just never get the job done. He put a a side-by-side look at their stats. And per stats, Kirk Cousins just badly outplayed Russell Wilson. But if you actually watch the game, Russell Wilson was so much better than Kirk Cousins in that game. And I thought it was such <laughs> such a great illustration of, of what he's been kind of beating the drum on for years. And he's right. I mean, Russell Wilson's stats in that game were downright atrocious. And he, he was like 72 yards passing. Yeah, and he was so much better than Kirk Cousins on just every level in that game. And so and this is more of just football talk now. But I thought that was interesting. Well, I mean, that brings us back to the whole Baker Mayfield thing. And and again, I'm going to. I'm going to rag on Hugh Jackson and Todd Haley, and it's mostly Hugh Jackson because he's he was there before Todd Haley for a couple of years. The Browns were awful. They obviously went went winless in 17, and he had you know Deshaun Kaiser and you know throwing other random quarterbacks. And obviously those guys aren't particularly great, but they were even worse with the Browns. For the beginning of the year, he obviously didn't have Ty- he had Tyrod Taylor playing over Baker Mayfield, which it was really bizarre to me that they just were married to that idea from the beginning. I mean, I get why they did it, because they signed Tyrod for all this money, and they're like, you know what, we don't want to ruin Baker Mayfield. We're going to have him sit and learn a little bit. But, I mean, let's let's be honest. There's there's no question that by the end of training camp, Baker Mayfield was better than Tyrod Taylor. It's just Tyrod Taylor's the veteran, so they went with him. And it took an injury to Tyrod Taylor against the Jets in Week 3 just to get Mayfield into the game. And, of course, Mayfield played really well. And won them that game, and it was the first win in forever. My my point, the reason I went, my point is though, is that you know all the quarterbacks before with Hugh Jackson stuff were obviously bad, but they're bad quarterbacks. With Baker Mayfield, you know Baker went in and, and he had some flashes, but Baker didn't look like Baker for the first you know eight games, or I guess it would have been like five and a half games until Jackson got fired. His stats were were not great. I mean, he was like completion percentage was like below sixty percent, and you know he had some touchdowns, but he had some picks too, and whatever. But ever since then. 
I mean, that you keep seeing the stats since Hugh Jackson got fired. I mean, Baker's like over 70% completions, way more touchdowns, not as many interceptions, very rarely sacked. And it just shows me, it's like, wow. I mean, Hugh Jackson and Todd Haley, I guess, to be fair for this year, they couldn't figure it out with Baker Mayfield, who's clearly one of the best rookie quarterbacks in years, probably since Andrew Luck. And he's having, Baker's having a, a much better year than Andrew Luck had as a rookie. So, it just tells you like those guys don't know what they're doing like they're so far behind the times when it comes to offensive football and a guy like Freddie Kitchens who's never had a full-time offensive coordinator job is earning himself some money this season I don't know if he's gonna depending on what the Browns do who knows but I mean the Browns went out Grant that's gonna it's gonna be difficult for John Dorsey unless he knows like a home run type offensive coach hire to not just keep Greg Williams and Freddie Kitchens which is kind of crazy but uh, I just again, I just wanted to point out how ridiculous it is that Baker Mayfield has looked so much better since Hugh Jackson left. And this is the Baker Mayfield that we've saw and seen at Oklahoma. And he's still in his first year in the NFL. Granted, on Saturday, he was off. He was not particularly sharp against the Broncos. He missed some throws and it was like, that was weird. He did throw that dime touchdown pass. But I mean, there were some big time misses that you just you know that he's a pretty good player, Grant, whenever he misses an out route pretty badly like oh, that was weird like he doesn't miss that throw and then he missed a couple other one that pick he threw was really bad big time overthrow so he was just off and he hasn't played as well on the road as he's played in Cleveland so he'll have to get better at that but and even in a game where the Browns uh, were on the road and Baker was off they found a way to win because that Browns defense came up big and Case Keenum is not very good so I mean that's that's a good win for a young team that has a lot of confidence right now yeah for sure. I mean, it's the Browns are really fun to watch. I mean, maybe maybe the funnest team to watch in the NFL right now, in my opinion. But I mean, obviously, I'm biased. So um, they're a lot more fun to watch than the Bears are, and the Bears have a really fun defense. I'm, I'm a Bears fan. The Bears offense, like I keep, I, I always think, man, I really wish Baker Mayfield played for the Bears. If Baker Mayfield played for the Bears, Grant, the Bears would be a, a would have a great shot of winning the Super Bowl this season. I mean, Mitchell Trubisky misses so many wide open throws. And like Baker Mayfield doesn't have guys wide open a lot of the time. He has to put the ball in tight windows and between tight coverage. Yeah, I, and Matt Nagy schemes up so many open throws for Trubisky, and he's he misses them all the time. Yeah. I think Lee uh, Baker Mayfield is I think has really helped me sort of get a feel for you know how to evaluate a quarterback coming out of college, especially the guys that are really going to impress me. Lee coming out from college are the ones who aggressively get it downfield. And that was obviously Baker Mayfield coming out of college. People were, I mean, idiots to be frank with you were completely blind to it during the draft process. Um, there are people who are questioning his arm strength. Ridiculous. He threw a ball 65 yards in the air last week uh, to Brashad Perryman. Um, it was 54 Actually, it was 65. It was 54 scrimmage yards. Did you see that was like the longest completion through the air of, of the NFL season? Yeah, yeah. And then also just going <laughs> back uh, and then going back to one of his touchdown passes uh, also against Carolina last week. I'm talking about the one to Jarvis Landry, which is one of the best <laughs> throws I have literally ever seen. That's the best throw I've ever seen Baker Mayfield make. That guy is a freaking star. That guy's going to be making yeah. a lot of those throws in the NFL. He's going to win a Super Bowl and an MVP someday. And it's awesome. I'm so glad. And again, I've just I've had such an amazingly fun time watching him. Like I, I am so excited that it only took a couple games. I, I, he should have been starting from the beginning, 
but I'm so glad that we have gotten another fall of watching Baker Mayfield. It would have been a lot cooler, obviously, if he was still on Oklahoma, blah, blah, blah. I mean, thank God that Kyler Murray is so good. But again, Baker Mayfield, I'm not a big guy that gets super into individual players. And like, I, Baker Mayfield might be my favorite football player ever. And I just I can't stop watching him. He's so fun to watch. I think a lot of it comes from obviously we're we have a lot invested. We watched him play at Oklahoma. We kind of know him. I mean, he's very personable and we kind of know his personality. So that helps a lot, too. And also too, just all the doubters. And it was one of those things where in the draft process, like it was kind of cool to be on our side to know that we actually had the proper information. Like we knew that he was really good. And any time that you heard draft experts or people that actually watch tape of him and watch enough and they'd come out and actually say oh yeah he's actually pretty darn good like Greg Cosell for instance you know it's like yeah like we know he's good and then it's always fun to hear the other people that were doubting him and you kind of know eh, you don't know what you're talking about and he is by far the best rookie quarterback of the bunch this season and again like I said a moment ago he's He's been the best rookie quarterback, I think, since Andrew Luck, and he's having a better year than Andrew Luck. Did you hear, uh, wait, this season? You mean his his rookie year? Andrew Luck has been his, better than Baker Andrew Mayfield Luck's, this year. Andrew Luck's rookie year. Okay, thank you. I was going to say, because, yeah, I was going to say, Lee, the, the, actually, I think the only team that's maybe more fun to watch than, than the Browns is actually the Colts right now. Incredibly fun to watch. Well, yeah, Andrew Luck's awesome. Pl- I love watching Andrew Luck play. Yeah, but um, let's see here. What else did I have? Um, yeah, Lee, I don't know. Just uh, congrats. You, you, know, you were saying, like, did you see? Did I see something? Did, did did you forget? Oh, yeah. Did did you see Greg Cosell on on Cowherd this past week? He basically... Did, yeah. did you Did you hear how excited he was when he was talking about <laughs> Baker Mayfield's accuracy? Yeah. Like, he had he, he always, had... he was giddy in his voice when he was talking about Baker Mayfield's accuracy down the field. And that's why it was so bizarre on Saturday when he was missing, missing throws. And, I mean, I, you can't believe perfect every time and he's again no, he's a people, rookie people are off sometimes hey Peyton Manning had some awful games in, in his prime for the Colts and I know that yeah. I mean that's that's going a little overboard but it's, it's hyperbolic it's, yeah. it's hyperbolic but it's it's just to say even the best have bad days um and what what kind of sets the best from just sort of the average or the best guys from someone like say Kirk Cousins Baker Mayfield had an off game Lee, and he still made enough plays for the Browns to win that game that's something that Kirk Cousins has really never done in his entire career yeah Baker Mayfield just did that, you know, as a you know, as a rookie, and that's in, in a game that had playoff implications. Playing against a team that was also playing for the playoffs at home, and they went into their house and they beat them. That's very significant, and that's something that not a lot of guys can do. So, um, and clearly, a game that the Browns under Hugh Jackson and Todd Haley would have definitely lost. I mean, there's zero doubt they would have lost that because they lost a bunch of close games earlier this year with those guys coaching. I mean, and just think about like the Raiders game. I mean, that's one extra win that they could have, and they could be that much closer to the playoffs. And uh, there's another one that's, that I can't think of right now that they should have won too. But it, and uh, yeah, and so before we go, let's just, it's always fun when Baker Mayfield comes up in sports. You know, Colin Coward's the biggest hater of them. And, you know, let's just kind of touch on a couple things. His, his big thing has always kind of been, he's always said that he doesn't think Baker Mayfield's going to be a bust. And I think it's kind of funny though. He always says, he's always been saying he's more case Keenum than anybody else. That's kind of like his ceiling. Well, it's kind of funny that those guys matched up on Saturday night and case Keenum was truly awful. And Baker Mayfield, even though Mayfield was not as good as he has been still played better than case Keenum in a bad game. And Keenum has been in the league for years. So it's like, that was always a terrible take that Case Keenum was Mayfield's ceiling. 
like he's already having a better I guess, season. I, I just than, I, yeah. I don't understand. I, I I'm still. <laughs> I just trigger you big time. Yeah, with that? no, I, I'm still convinced that people who said stuff like this legitimately did not watch him play in college at all. Yeah, I, I just that's it's, just fair. Yeah, watch him play in college. That guy had a freaking rope, a rocket attached to his right arm. Case Keenum has a freaking noodle arm, a water pistol arm, just like Andy Dalton, like Colin Cowherd likes to say. I just it's and and while and while Baker's pick was not good against. The Broncos, both of Keenum's picks. I think he had two or three. He had two for sure. Both of the, his picks were really bad. I mean, just throwing it up for grabs and bad spot. One of them was in the end zone. I guess one of the Baker's picks was near the end zone too. Um, let's see. I have one other thing. Oh yeah, and also to like the one of the narratives to that coward likes to use that it's it's annoying because it, it's like the long game. He's playing like the long game with it. He's he's always said, you know what? I just think over you know 10 15 years Sam Darnold's going to be a better player than Baker Mayfield over time and it's like you know what cool awesome take is now we have to wait 10 or 15 years from now to see if that's right so it's like it's, it's almost like a cop-out take but my thought on that has always been like well if Baker Mayfield's way better than Darnold right now and you think Darnold's going to improve a lot well why don't you think Baker Mayfield's going to improve a lot I mean hasn't every NFL quarterback that's really good right now gotten significantly better from the rookie year I mean, Russell Wilson was really good as a rookie. He's awesome now. Uh, obviously, Drew Brees has been awesome throughout his entire career, gotten better and better and better. Tom Brady, like, so if Bay- Mayfield's already better than Sam Darnold, and I think by a, a pretty good margin, why wouldn't Mayfield continue to get better and better and still be better than Darnold 10 or 15 years from now? Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and, and sorry, I'm not, I'm not done with this, with this garbage oh. Case Keenum comparison. Oh, I just, I need to, it. I need to keep going. But I just had one last thing to say on that. I would agree that Baker Mayfield and Case Keenum are are similar style of athletes. I think they're very comparable in terms of their athleticism. In terms of everything else that a quarterback does, Baker Mayfield is infinitely more talented and skilled than Case Keenum is, and that's apparent to anyone who has ever watched football critically, in my opinion. So I just wanted to, wanted to finish on that. And there's some weird narrative out there that Case Keenum's having a good season. I know that Cowherd was because he was having a fun time Saturday night tweeting back at people that were kind of going at him about Baker stuff. And he I think he had a tweet about Case Keenum. And he was like, you know, people have ragged on me when I compare Mayfield to Keenum. And you look at Keenum's record like uh, Keenum was really good with the Vikings. And now the the Broncos are better with Keenum this year. It's like like, Keenum's been not good this year. I mean, yeah, he's been, I guess, better for the Broncos because the Broncos have had just dumpster fires at quarterback because John Elway has no clue how to evaluate the quarterback position. So just because the Broncos, I guess, technically have been a little better this year doesn't mean Keenum has been good because Keenum has not been good. He's been like a game manager and slightly below average, and he had obviously a great season a year ago. And like you've pointed out multiple times, you give credit to other people for Case Keenum's career year. Pat Shermer, who's now in New York, and all the two receivers who, uh, Thielen and Diggs, and now, you know, Kirk Cousins is in. Like I don't, I don't know what would have happened if Case Keenum stayed in Minnesota. But I'm telling you, he'd not be as good, and he'd probably be the same as Kirk Cousins or a little bit worse. So, uh, I had one more thought on uh, the whole Baker Mayfield thing, and another thing that that Colin likes to bring up as well. And I know some people might think like using other people's takes is like motivation for our show is kind of like hacky ah it might be but i kind of like breaking down other people's takes because why not i mean it's fun i mean that's kind of like the whole debate culture we're in but the another big thing that colin likes to use right now is that 
with the Jets and Sam Darnold, there's no good offensive players on that team. The offensive line is terrible. The coaching staff's not offensively minded, so Darnold just does not have anything to work with. And to some extent, that's true. Um, I, you know, I'm not the biggest. Um, geez, I'm blanking now on. I don't. Who's their coordinator? Uh, coordinator. Jeremy Pruitt. Uh, Jeremy Bates. Oh, Jeremy Bates. Oh, Jeremy, Jeremy Pruitt's Bates, the Tennessee before. head coach. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, I ripped Jeremy Bates. I mean, one of my big things going into the draft was weirdly Cleveland would be a good spot for any quarterback over the Jets because of the offensive coaches with Hugh Jackson and Todd Haley. Well, weirdly enough, those guys actually ended up being incompetent. And uh, Freddie Kitchens being there has been helpful for Baker Mayfield. But still, uh, Jeremy Bates is not particularly great. And they have a defensive minded head coach in Todd Bowles. So, yeah, I, I agree with that. But I kind of cut you off. I'll let you get to the thing here. Uh, I'll let you get to your take in a second. But the reason I think that's a lazy take about how Darnold has nothing to work with. And yeah, he played really well on Saturday. Don't get me wrong. It's a good Texans defense. Darnold played well. And Darnold's good. I like Darnold. He's going to be a good player. Uh, he's got to get some better coaches around him and some better players. But here's the thing. It's the Browns. The Browns have been the laughing stock of not just the NFL, but sports in general for years. And Baker Mayfield has come in and totally changed the culture of the team like you and I said early on when the draft happened like if anybody's going to be able to do that it's Baker Mayfield so far so good you, <laughs> Baker Mayfield is elevating every single player on that team not just the offense but the defense too because they're excited that they have a competent quarterback remember in the first couple of games of the year Grant especially in that Jets Browns game on Thursday night remember how bad Tyrod Taylor was especially against the Jets and a couple of games before, everyone was saying, gosh, that Browns offensive line is just terrible. It's so bad. It's a horrible offensive line. And then what do you know? Baker Mayfield comes into that game in the second half. I don't believe he got touched. He might have gotten sacked one time. And even and for the rest of the year, I know that he got sacked a decent amount against like the Steelers, who were just selling out against rookie quarterback. And he might have gotten touched a bit against the Ravens. Two pretty good defenses. But for the most part, especially since Hugh Jackson got fired, Mayfield's been sacked like twice. He got sacked, I think, one time against the Broncos when uh, Von Miller got him. And I guess he got he got stripped, so that might be a sack too. But the point is, the whole offensive line is garbage argument to me is not a good argument because you get a good quarterback in there and that can make an offensive line better because they get rid of the football quicker. They understand the offense. They have more timing routes. They get the ball out, like I said. And weird how all of a sudden the Browns offensive line, if you talk to Colin Coward and other people, they actually not that bad. It's actually not that bad. Oh, wait a second. It was it was atrocious in weeks one through three. What happened? I don't know. The quarterback is good. And Baker Mayfield has elevated everybody. So you know what? My, my point is, is that you throw Baker Mayfield on that Jets team, and I bet that offensive line would look a lot better. I bet those receivers would look a lot better. He's making Brashad Perriman look like a good receiver. That great catch that Perriman had is because it was a great ball by Baker Mayfield, and these guys are getting opportunities to make catches that they otherwise wouldn't have with a bad quarterback. He's making Rashard Higgins a viable receiver. You tell me he wouldn't be able to make Quincy Anunwa and Robbie Anderson and okay. the well, you, they have okay. there a better player? Okay, you're totally stealing my take now. So. Oh, crap. Sorry. Okay, I'll stop then. You go ahead. Okay, so I was going to say, and this, this needs to be the last thing that we, that we say on this because we're getting way too far into the weeds. Um, I agree that Jarvis Landry is, is better probably than anybody that the Jets have. Um, Robbie Anderson and Quincy Anunwa by an order of magnitude would be the would be are much better than Baker Mayfield's second options. The the Browns' second best receiver is Duke Johnson, and they barely even use them. Yeah, and I know they have da- I know they have David and Joku, but that guy can't catch, so he doesn't really count. Oh, so that's your t- yeah, and just think about all the drops 
that Baker had early on in the year when he first came in. Like the, there hasn't been as many drops lately. Granted, last week in that game, there was two horrible drops, one by Njoku and one by, I think, Perriman or Higgins. That would have been easy first down explosive plays that made that game a little closer than it should have been. And Baker could have had even better stats. He would have been 20 of 22. I mean, they're like legitimate drops. Instead, he was 18 for 22. But I think the drops have not been there as much as the season has gone on because the receivers have gotten more used to, hey, this quarterback's actually pretty good. He's putting the ball there. We're we're getting a lot more opportunities to catch the ball. Uh, Jarvis Landry is, uh, yeah, he's a better player, but he's he's fine. I mean, he. I think he's clearly he was like the number one option in Miami, just forced fed him the ball a lot. And yeah, he's athletic, but he's, I don't think he's as good. Like he's not like I don't think Jarvis Landry is a true number one receiver. He's like a he's like a really good number two, like for like a team, in my opinion. But um, yeah, boy. I I mean, well, if if Baker Mayfield had like Adam Thielen and Stephon Diggs, it would be it'd be not it'd be not safe for work on a weekly basis. I mean, it would just be um, my I can't so that's even. My, that's my whole thing. It's like he guys like Coward are like really. They're like, oh, the Browns have a lot of talent on their team. Look at all that talent. Baker's got a lot to work with. Get out of here. It's the Browns. They were 0-16 last year. I mean, it, Sam Darnold would not have the Browns in this same situation. The with Browns' that. receivers are bad. They, they have a bad receiving core. Ugh. So, and, and granted, again, I like Sam Darnold, but he's not as good as Baker Mayfield. He just isn't. He's going to be a good player, especially if they give him some good offensive coaches and stuff like that. Uh, he's got a lot of talent. I still think it's up for debate if he's going to be a good player, to be honest with you. All right. I mean, I, I, I think it's likely that he has a good career. Uh, but, I mean, he, is, he has not been particularly good this year at all. I think, I think Lamar Jackson's probably been more impressive in, in his short time than, than Darnold has okay. all season. Okay, okay. That's, I'm not even going to entertain that argument because Lamar Jackson is a one-dimensional player. You're not but, even gonna, uh, it, you're not even going to entertain the art. That's that's a ter- no. That's a terrible take. Did you see? And it even goes. Uh, we're recording this on Sunday. Crazily enough, is this going to be Lamar Jackson's fourth or fifth start? Fourth start, I think. Right? They've played legitimately every single game, like the worst run defense in the NFL. Every single game. So if they actually go up against a team that can stop the run, what's he going to do? And even like Tampa Bay. Tampa Bay is like almost dead last stopping the run. So that's I'm waiting for that to happen. And when he's actually forced to make throws, like the Chiefs run defense is, is brutal. The Raiders run defense is brutal. Uh, Tampa Bay on Sunday and whoever else they played. Atlanta. Atlanta's defense in general is terrible. So uh, uh, Sam Darnold has shown the ability to make throws. And even though he throws a lot of picks, he's he's a good player. And he played really well against. He played better against the Texans, I thought, than, than Baker played against the Texans a couple weeks ago. All right, we have to get out. We have to get out of here. This is this is this, this is, is our longest podcast. Thanks this, for listening, everybody. This is starting to to legitimately be bad. We got to get out of here. All right, that's it. We're going to strive for the next podcast again to be either Thursday or Friday. So stay tuned to the West of Everest Facebook page for updates. Until then, for Grant, I am Lee. This is West of Everest. <laughs>